Hello and welcome to episode 72 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, it's the big one as we will be counting down our individual lists for the top 10 movies of 2019. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm doing great, Scott. I'm excited to be doing uh, for the second year in a row our best movies of, of the year with our uh, friends over at Purely Nostalgia. They're here with us today. But yeah, doing great. Excited. Had a good New Year's Eve last night and uh, kicking off the New Year right talking about the last year. So that's what everyone does on New Year's Day, right? So yeah, you 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 uh, revealed it there that we, we are joined by guests. Uh, as Scott alluded to, we are very happy to be uh, joined for the second straight year by our friends from the Purely Nostalgia podcast. We have Clint, Jazz Hands, Page, and joining us live and in person this time, uh, Eli Shap Smith. Uh, Clinton, Eli, w- welcome back, guys. Glad to be here Thank where I can actually us. see your faces this time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so last year, we we kind of described your podcast to our listeners and essentially what you guys do at Purely Nostalgia. Basically, what you do is look at the movies that people from our generation, so like people from their 20s, um, loved as kids and see if they really hold up under adult scrutiny. Uh, and some of the movies that y'all did this year were Pirates of the Caribbean series, uh, Air Bud, Big Fat Liar. Those were just a few. Uh, but I was wondering if you guys have any teasers out there, any previews of what's coming in 2020 uh, as far as what movies y'all are going to talk about on Purely Nostalgia, maybe. Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> We're, there's two movies that were released in the mid 2000s. One is called Dougal and one is oh called my Delgo. I remember Dougal. Uh, I don't remember the other Yeah. One. So I saw Dougal in theaters. Delgo, neither of us really know anything about. We just know yeah. it was a huge flop and the poster makes it look atrocious. So do they we hold were just, up the same? Um, <laughs> that's the question. So Dougal, I remember like being in the theater as like a sixth grader or whatever, being like, this is bad. Like sometimes movies are bad. So. <laughs> We're going to find out which is better, Delgo or Dougal. The debate kind of like who is Bill Paxton, who is Bill Pullman, really the debate that rages within the film community, Dougal or Delgo. I'm glad somebody will finally be putting it to rest. And Mm -hmm. I've I've personally seen neither. And so um, I'm looking forward to this baptism, I guess. I really want that that to trend on Twitter, that hashtag to trend yeah, on Twitter. Yeah, hashtag Google or Delgo. Um, and I also noticed y'all dropped, is it an awards episode today? Could you, you want to say yes. anything about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, this was our first annual Nostalgies. As we know, the beginning of the new year is what's affectionately known as um, award season. You know, we have the Screen Actors Guild coming up, I believe, in 18 days, if I'm not mistaken. The Golden Globe. Um, very precise. Golden, Golden Globe Awards. Golden um, yeah, I know. It's <laughs> it's my rain, man. Uh, drop, a, drop some toothpicks on the ground. I'll tell you how many are there. But um, we uh, we had our own award season of uh, movies that we viewed um, in 2019 that just just that are just unique to our podcast. And we did um, our version of best actor, best actress, um, the most nostalgic movie, uh, meaning like it's not that good, but it's only good through the lens of nostalgia. And then the it holds up award Um, and then also the family friendly movie of 2019. 
Elisha, do you want to tell everyone what your family-friendly movie of 2019 was? But so my nominee was The Farewell, and which is PG. It is, yeah. And and Clint's was what oh, was it again? My family-friendly movie of 2019 was Bernie the Dolphin Two. Well, Not thank fair. God, the sequel that we have all been waiting for. Uh, but <laughs> really? that sounds great. Check out Purely Nostalgia wherever <laughs> you guys great. get your podcasts. I think y'all are on all of the podcast apps and such. So. Yeah. Uh, we hope so. <laughs> yeah, we intend to be. Uh, you know, a new one springs yeah. up every now and then. But um, ask Jeeves podcast. Yeah. Um, all right, guys. Well, before we get into the many highlights from an incredible year in film, I do want us to spend a moment on those admittedly few lowlights from the year. So let's start off with our individual choices for the absolute bottom of the barrel, the worst film of 2019. Eli, we'll start with you. I I think I'm going to say. Um, extremely wicked shockingly evil and vile um that was a movie that i just hated so much it was it's the ted bundy movie starring zach efron it was a netflix original and uh i just did not like the way it like portrayed this serial killer is just like a cool dude and also it was just really boring i thought so yeah i just was not a fan of that but like looking at my list like there's very few movies that i hated this year so it was kind of hard to pick um my least favorite but i i think that's what i would go with um just did not like that one at all yeah that, that movie is actively terrible i watched that <laughs> on uh, on a plane on a flight going to i think i was going, flying somewhere for work and i remember like stopping halfway through this movie and i'm like no no like th- this movie is just portraying ted bundy as like this pretty charismatic guy and actually kind of asking you the question like did he do these things like obviously the, the yeah. movie ends up telling you at the end that he did do those things but did he really like, do it the cr- but also then like the emotional crux of the movie is like his first I guess his wife or his first wife where she's like discovering that and having to come to terms with the fact that he did do all of these things and just like no like t- does a horrible job actually conveying that like all of the tension that mm-hmm. it builds with his wife and like that narrative arc is is actively bad like, nothing I can't honestly think of a single good thing about that movie yeah I saw it as well and I I think I thought it was fine at the time. I kind of liked it at the time, but literally could not remember a thing about this movie. Like I could not tell you a thing about this movie outside of like that Zac Efron stars in it and that the girl mm-hmm. from Crawl played his, played someone in it. But um, and so like it, it has definitely lost a lot of luster in my mind. And while it's not at the very bottom for me, um, it's definitely, definitely down there in the list and something that people should, should not take out, maybe check out. Maybe uh, this is one of the few movies where like the, the discourse was pretty much on point with in terms of talking about how they portrayed Ted Bundy in a, in a sympathetic light. Whereas with other films, maybe some that we will get into on this episode. Uh, I would like to counter. Yeah. I'd like, um, I have not seen the movie, so I'll admit um, my opinion is unsubstantiated. Maybe, maybe I'm assuming too much for the group here, but I think I can say and speak for the majority of us that murder is bad. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Can confirm. And the, in most cases. Yeah. Sure. Um. And the um, motif of that movie, I'm assuming, is murder. Correct. It is. Murder. I'm not sure that that is. <laughs> no. <laughs> I. I mean, he's a murderer. Um. And so, if the movie is about murder and murder is bad, maybe the movie did its job. Oh wow! Wow. Makes you think. Wow. Well, that's. Way. At, yeah. at, to for a tease for later in the conversation, that's that's very metaphorical. Uh, <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Uh, Some like it's gotten purely nostalgic. The two best anti-murder podcasts that you can find on your podcast app. Um, 
Clint, over to you for your worst film of the year now. Yeah, uh, Cats, man. Oh, boy. Yeah, so here's the thing. It wasn't, it was bad. Like, it, it, universally, it was bad. Um, I mean, we, we have a cat stand uh, present with us at the moment. <laughs> Uh, for whatever reason, I don't know that I'm giving myself that title. So <laughs> yes, okay. I'm. Well, I'm. I'm awarding you that title. Okay. Um, it was. I mean, it was just gross to look at. Um, it was icky. They were. Um, yeah. Hmm. I don't know if I can say some words on here, but those cats. Those cats were uh, giving off some signals that were just not appropriate for, for most audiences, <laughs> and. Um, I mean, it was fun to watch because my my wife and I, uh, we had a grand old time watching that movie. Um, And I think the best way to sum it up, um, my feelings of this movie um, is that my wife leaned over to me halfway through the movie and said, whose fault is this? And (laughs) universals. uh, Yeah. And Andrew Lloyd Webber to some degree. But um, it was just icky. It was gross. Um, They they looked they looked weird. The music was okay. Um, I've seen the musical live. It's nothing fantastic. Uh, Jennifer Hudson, she really tried though. Uh, she she did something, but uh, yeah. Uh, and they had noses and hands. <laughs> they did indeed. Some, some of them really had, had their rings on too. Yeah. <laughs> Before we hear from the cat stand, uh, Scott, do you want to share anything about our experience of watching this movie about yeah, 1045 and I had, on a Friday night? Yeah, Scott and I had the luxury of seeing this movie together at 1045 wow. on opening night. Oof. And uh, it was quite the experience. Um, I, it was were people I, dressed up. No, there <laughs> was no there one in the theater. People in the theater, and okay. one was just a, a guy by himself in his thirties, wearing like an allergy, like a mask over his face, like f- to protect himself from allergies. <laughs> Unfortunately, he needed to wear a mask over his eyes to be able to get away yeah. from the movie. Uh, but no, so this this experience was uh, y- unique and singular in its own right. Um, and Scott and I, it, I, I guess not in the moment, but. After the fact, I think that watching cats and then reading some of the reviews of people, uh, you know, critics in the space was probably one of the most validating experiences I've ever had watching a movie because I was throughout the entire film. I'm like leaning over to Scott and I'm like, are their feet touching the ground? Are there like hands <laughs> even even like actually like, fully CG'd? And or after the fact, like seeing the same complaints from critics online, I was just like, wow, I can't I've never felt more validated. Also. A tease for maybe our one of our awards, uh, some an award we might do later uh, in our in our year. I guess whenever we do our awards episode for something like it's got one of the most horrific moments on screen oh, for yeah. the entire year when McCavity rips oh. off his coat, like oh, no. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> ghastly. My theater gasped gross. when he came up there, like <gasps> it's like the comic sitcom, like. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like one of those things where, like, I've had like two huge gasp moments, like recently, like the last like few weeks. One of them is like the ending of Uncut Gems, and the other is McCavity ripping off his cat coat. All the all the women in my audience stood up and grasped their pearls. At that moment. <laughs> yeah, no, I echo what Scott said. This was this was a quite an experience, and it, it generally some of the worst effects that I've seen. And and I will say we. We saw the version before they have fixed some of the effects. I don't know how really you can fix much of it. But beyond that, just the plot of the movie, which is that there was no plot, really. Um, And the nonsensical lyrics to the songs, which apparently were ripped from T.S. Eliot. um, And then the fact that the actress seemed to be giving it like an 100 out of 10, particularly Jennifer Hudson, who just like when she sings Memory at the end of the film, I mean, 
I have likened it to like when Meryl Streep is watching her children sit to the gas chamber and in Sophie's Choice. Like that is the level of emotion that she's giving it. Um, yeah, cats in the Holocaust are pretty analogous for me. I mean, too. yeah. Um, but yeah, but at the same time, like, but go, go see this movie. <laughs> go see it with like a group of friends, you know, just, just enjoy the experience of watching this movie. Cause as bad as the film is, it's one of those like so bad it's good movies that you want to say that you were able to see in theaters and maybe will become like a cult thing uh, from, you know, in the future. Eli, do you not want to stand up for this film? Um, go see this film with your grandmother. Is what I'm <laughs> because I saw this movie with my grandma <laughs> We were just bored a few days after Christmas or whatever. And um, she was just staring at the screen blank face. It was the funniest thing ever. I just kept looking over <laughs> thinking like what is going through her head. Um, I don't think this is a good movie, but I I just had such a good time watching it. And I think there's some I, I don't think the effects are as bad as a lot of people seem to be saying they are, with the exception of the mice, which are maybe the worst thing that I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> little mice dancing around with little children faces. Uh, it was horrible to look at, but I, I, I certainly see why people are saying that, but I really like found myself curious, like what someone could use the, not that it's like really new technology. I mean, it's motion capture and they put faces on cats, but like, I feel like someone could do this better down the road yeah. and like use this for some sort of weird, like sci-fi movie where, uh, where instead of cats with human faces, it's aliens where they have really emotive faces. I don't know. I just, I found this movie incredibly interesting and I could not, uh, I'd, I, it was much more interesting than many movies this year. Far from the worst movie I've seen this year. So yeah, yeah I, I enjoyed I it. it. It's not the absolute worst for me. I have to ask, um, Elisha, did your sister take your niece to see this movie? No, she okay. I actually I she asked me if she should. My niece is four years old. She just turned four yesterday. And I was like, no, don't take her. And then I was like, no, actually, please do. But then she was like, no, I'm not going to based on your first response. So I wish she had. But good case really for cats, ladies and gentlemen. Um, OK, Scott, over to you for your worst of the year. Yeah, well, we do actually have a comment. Uh, in here about our our commentary on uh, extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile, because about I guess kind of almost a cleanse point. Oh, I thought that, that was about McCavity for a second. Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> it's not. Uh, that'd be funny though. <laughs> no, talking about it's off uh, that he's off putting because he's did nothing and, wrong, and women don't expect it. I mean, I think that's definitely part of it. But the the thing for me is that it leans so far into it. Just quickly going back to that, that it leans so far into that portrayal of him uh, that it it feels like it's almost the movie's almost trying to defend him in a way. And it's, it's almost the perspective the movie is shot from that, that left it feeling very off putting uh, to me. I don't Eli or Clint. I don't know. If yeah. That's about that. I, I think it, there could have, it could have been done well and it just wasn't like, I, I, I found myself the whole time thinking like, they want me to like this guy. Like, why yeah. are they trying to do this to me? It didn't work, but it's I, a litmus it's, test. Yeah, sure, whatever. Right, because it can't work because you know who he is. But the fact that, yeah, like, yeah, no. Eh, so what? Oh, well. But anyway, yeah, so my least, my worst movie of the year is another Netflix film. Uh, I, I actually, I joked with Scott before we started doing this that one of the things that I was going to do um, instead of listing a specific movie for, for this, I was just going to talk about like all the crappy Netflix films that came out this year because my like worst five or six movies are all from Netflix. But the absolute worst one is this film called Secret Obsession uh, with 
is it is it Brenda, I, song, right? Brenda song who's London from Sweet huh. Life of Zach and Cody <laughs> uh, yeah, she, she stars is. stars in the main role and I just like I'll get so worked up if I actually start talking about this for too long but like go, the go my ahead. quick plot summary of this is that so basically it's this the opening scene of this film is Brenda Song's character being chased by someone who's trying to kill her. Uh, she is able to escape with like some serious injuries, but she's taken to the hospital. And then like the rest of the movie is like her recovering and she has amnesia. She doesn't remember who was chasing her, things like that. And to not spoil anything for those of you who are like, I don't know, grossly and curious about why this movie is so bad, but like the whole plot of the movie to me boils down to like the story about an incel trying to like, I don't know, like be with the person that he's like interested in. Mm. And then it's like all, only at the end of the movie, do they realize like, oh shit, like the incel can't actually be with the woman and like, he can't like win and, and succeed. And it, like only in the last few minutes of the movie, does it feel like the movie appreciates the character that it's created on screen. And it's just, it's just a terrible, terrible film. Yeah. Scott saw so many more movies than I did this year. And this was one of the ones that he saw that I didn't, but uh, you know, honestly, at, even though he can claim he he can have the flex of having seen like 20 more movies than me. I'm not sure. It seemed to me like most of the experiences were pretty similar to this one with the films that you no. watched and that I didn't watch only a handful of them. Like, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, you watched the last summer though. Like you watched the last summer, which true. was my second worst movie, the laundromat, also my second worst. Yeah. The laundromat murder mystery and earthquake bird. Those were all true, but like, Whoa. I don't know. Earthquake bird. <laughs> what about actually, it? Actually, I, I said that that was my second worst, but The Lion King was actually my second worst. But Clint, do you have anything to add about birds and earthquakes? No. Birds and earthquakes. But that's a pretty cool combo, if you ask me. Uh, apparently, that was all the movie had going for it. But uh, so for my worst movie, you know, Scott, last year we saw a movie that was so bad that I didn't think we would see anything that would top it for probably. 20 years maybe and that movie was was of course vice um and however this year um i you know little did i think that the next year we would have a movie that is possibly even worse um than vice but allow me to tell you all the tale of a film called black christmas uh which was released by blumhouse at christmas and scott was frankly a movie that i was looking forward to right like it has the blumhouse name blumhouse rarely goes wrong when it comes to these sort of mid-tier budget horror movies uh, and we talked yeah. about it on the podcast. We talked about how we talked about the trailer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Imogen Poot stars in this movie. I'm a fan of her as an actress. It's a remake of an old slasher. I thought, look, this is going to be uh, just a fun horror movie to go to at Christmas. There aren't many like holiday horror movies out there. So this is going to be fun. So I went on the opening night of this film and was truly one of the most interminable experiences, despite being like 90 minutes or something. Um, because in, in a failed attempt to modernize the movie, um, and modernize what was just a slasher movie in the 1970s when it originally was released. They've inserted this whole critique about college rape culture and stuff, which is obviously a really important thing to confront and which I think could be the subject of a good horror movie. But the like broad sledgehammer manner in which they convey their critique in this movie um, is perhaps one of the most tone deaf things that I've ever seen. We're, We're talking about a movie where, and I'll just tell you best line of the year right here, the end of the movie, Imogen Poots confronts the coven, and I literally say coven because it's, it's, it is a cult of men in a fraternity nice. who have been supernaturally like messing with these guys to, to make them torment women and, um, and says to the leader of the, the coven, who is played by Carrie Elways, she says, you're insane, to which he replies, no, we are simply men. 
Um, and that, that, that is the level of critique that we're talking about here. We also have a character. Well, uh, you got me. For completely egregiously, like completely shoehorned into the movie, there's just this moment where he gets to say, I like beer, this frat bro, right? As an ode to Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> um, it is just a list of buzzwords, right? About like woke culture in 2019. And I would maybe the funniest experience that I had with this movie is afterwards when I was reading more about it and discovered who the screenwriter was, I went on Twitter to look her up and I discovered that I had actually blocked the screenwriter on Twitter. <laughs> Sometimes I use the use the block button on Twitter pretty liberally, but I could not remember when I blocked her or why I blocked her. But I there was this odd sense of comfort that I felt in knowing that I had blocked the writer of this terrible film. I will wow. say it's, it's directed by Sophia Sakal, who made a movie that I really like called Always Shine. Uh, I don't know what really went wrong here, but it was everything. Um, and but something went very wrong. Something went very wrong. It wasn't effective as a horror movie either. You don't really care about any of the characters, even Imogen Poots couldn't really do anything with the material. It's a truly, truly horrible film that actually is is kind of regressive in moments even and goes against what it's saying because like towards the end of the movie, Imogen Poots' character we learn has, has been sexually assaulted by a, a frat bro in the past. And during the final fight scene, he climbs on top of her and she starts having a flashback to when it happened. But this time she like pushes him off and like kills him basically. And kind of sending the message that, oh, well, if you just fought back the first time, this wouldn't have happened. Um, mm -hmm. And so the movie actually sort of undermines itself um, in, in, a, in a really terrible way, honestly. So just stay away from Black Christmas. It is it is vice level bad. Um, I didn't see this movie, but I did watch a review for it last night. And this is how I rang in the new year uh, of Fanatic with John Travolta. Oh, yes. Did you watch the Chris Stuckman review of it? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. There's um the first line of the movie. I really want to see it now, but the first line of mm -hmm. the movie is I can't talk right now. I have to poop. You gotta take a poop. <laughs> I gotta take a poop. Uh, <laughs> I mean, seen. Yeah. If we had if we had seen that one, it might have made a list, but it's also directed by Fred Durst of Limp Biscuit fans. Yeah. So there you go. Um okay, that should do it for our worst movies of the year. Before before we get uh to our to our top 10, to our top 10 list, we do have one more quick matter of business. Scott. Eli and I do have our 20 through 11s, which we're just going to briefly highlight so we can shout out some movies that might not otherwise get recognized. So Eli, do you want to run through your 20 through 11 quickly? Sure. Um, 20 was Paddleton, um, which was a Netflix original. Uh, mm -hmm. 19 was Spider-Man Far From Home. 18 was Honey Boy. Uh, 17 was um, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Um, 16 was Detective Pikachu. 15 was Rocket Man. 14 is High Life. 13 is a beautiful day of the neighborhood. 12 is parasite and 11 book smart man who killed Don Quixote. That was like a Terry Gilliam, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, that movie was made like several years ago, right? It's been, it's been through an absolute odyssey to get released. Oh yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But it, it, it was released, I think mainly this year. <laughs> I, yeah, no, no. That's what I'm saying. Like it, it took years yeah. for that movie to actually get distributed for some yes. reason. Um, I enjoyed it. It's a fun time. It's not a perfect movie, but very Adam Adam Driver part five thousand of the year. Yeah, man, he's done so much yeah, this year. I mean, he's that had one, a good I year. Shot a while. Um, other other thing that caught my ear: how weird is High Life? Obviously, you liked it quite a bit, but I haven't seen it. Scott saw it. He said it was a little little out there. It was an acid trip. It's weird. Um, yeah, it's it's so strange. I just is um, it H it's H twenty four right? Like Robert yes. Pattinson, mm -hmm. Robert Pattinson, A twenty four movies this year, like The Lighthouse and High Life. I mean, man, he like those are just weird movies. Uh, not yeah, in a bad way, not necessarily in a bad way. Just they're just very weird movies. 
kind of similar in some ways. I don't know. I I don't I don't even know if I want to go the road of trying to. Co- I mean, they both have <laughs> they both have masturbation scenes. Yes, and they're both like sort of about like sexual repression in some ways. Like in the because like Lighthouse is like two men <laughs> that are locked. We'll talk about that later. But yeah, um, High Life Jeez. is uh, it's just a weird Sorry. movie. I I enjoyed it a lot. I just think Robert, Robert Pattinson's so good in it and. Claire Denis um, is just like so clearly yes. just trying to make art for the sake of saying that I'm the most artsy person, but <laughs> that's just me. Apparently it paid off because um, a lot of people seem to like this movie too. Scott, you're 20 through 11. Yeah. So I, I, so this was a year and Scott and I have talked about this a lot, just like so many fantastic movies. And I was like looking at my top 20 list and the fact that movies like the farewell pain and glory, Richard Jewell, like those are my 21, 22 and 23, like just crazy to me that they didn't make my top 20 this year. But my top my 11 through 20 are as follows. My number 20 is Waves. Uh, Trey Edward Schultz. Great, great film. I think there's some some of the best moments of the year in that movie. But uh, the whole package didn't quite deliver uh, what some of the best moments kind of promised it might. Uh, number 19, The Irishman. Number 18, Loose. Another Kelvin, Kelvin Harrison Jr. is in both Loose and Waves. He had a really great year. Um, I think that kid's going to really do a lot of amazing stuff in the next few years. Number 17, Ad Astra. Number 16, John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum. Number 15, Toy Story 4. Number 14, Little Women. Number 13, Doctor Sleep. Number 12, Hustlers. And number 11, Wild Rose. I think that Hustlers and Wild Rose especially, I had a really tough time deciding my 9th through 12 spots. Mm-hmm. And they only just missed up. Yeah, I I said this the other day on our our most recent episode, but um, my 11 this year, looking back at last year, probably would have been my number five or six movie from last year. So that just tells you kind of the as good as last year was like we talked about last year being a good year, but I think this year was just even better. Okay, so for my 20 through 11, then number 20 is a movie that I think only myself, Eli, and the person who ran the Wendy's Twitter account have seen, and that is Them That Follow, um, which is this really interesting Southern Gothic sort of drama about a snake handling church um, that I really th- hope people will seek out because it's really interesting. And uh, Alice Englert and Olivia Coleman and Walton Goggins are all really good in this. Um, number 19, my mo- maybe my most controversial pick of the day, but I really did like Yesterday, the Danny Boyle romantic comedy. Um, I was I was thoroughly charmed by it. Uh, I, I, I related to what it said about the power of music. So um, shout out to, to that movie, which won't get any love this uh, this best of the year season. Um, number 18, Ad Astra. Again, amazed that this movie didn't make my top 10, but it's at number 18. I, I definitely need to rewatch that one. Number 17, Scott mentioned it. Loose is another movie that I think not enough people saw. It's a really interesting um, sort of like social issue thriller type movie that looks at racism and classism. Um, and you mentioned Kelvin Harrison Jr. Naomi Watts and uh, Octavia Spencer are also really good in this. So Tim check, Roth, out, too. check out Loose. Yeah, Tim Roth. Um, 16 uh, uh, is Marriage Story. Um, Netflix movie, very hard to watch at times. Uh, this movie from Noah Baumbach, but uh, very raw and very honest in a way that movies about divorce maybe haven't been since Kramer versus Kramer. Um, it's really well done, and those those performances are excellent. Uh, 15, Ford versus Ferrari. James Mangold just made a incredibly mainstream but incredibly competent movie that um is going to appeal to everyone which is something that i think is really hard to do in in today's day and age like it's it's hard to dislike anything about this movie i think and christian bale is really good number 14 hustlers one of my biggest surprises this year was this movie um really smart uh crime drama about these former uh strippers who extort from from wall street executives great performances across the board it's the it's the widows of this year 
It is, yes. Uh, Book Smart is my number 13. Great coming of age comedy from uh, Olivia Wilde. Some of the biggest laughs in this movie uh, of the year. Uh, number 12, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the uh, Marielle Heller film about Mr. Rogers, which I thought was a lot more offbeat and interesting and profound than I was expecting from uh, what looked to me like an Oscar Beatty movie, but it's really good. And number 11, I don't feel quite as bad about putting it at number 11 because I know it's going to come up a lot in this episode, but Ryan Johnson's Knives Out, um, ode to classic drawing room whodunits. Um, again, probably would have been my number five or six last year, but just couldn't find space for it this year. But it's an incredibly fun film and one that a lot of people are seeing, which I'm really happy about. It's doing really well at the box office. So uh, nobody's making movies like Ryan Johnson right now. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Take that Star Wars haters. <laughs> Hearing all of those, like it, it just reminded me how many movies I really love this year that I, that didn't even make it into my top 20. Yeah. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. Like hustlers was so good. Reminded I'm me of how many movies I did not see. <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah, I mean, like, I had the same reaction. Doctor Sleep, Fighting With My Family, Waves. These are all movies that I really like. The Farewell just didn't make it in. Uh, and there were some underrated movies, I think, this year, too, like Alita, Battle Angel, and Glass. Movies like that, I think, were movies that critics should not have crapped on as much as they did. Um, I even liked Aladdin, but maybe that's a little controversial. But, um, okay, with that, we could list off all the movies <laughs> this year uh, for hours, probably. But let's get into what we came here for, top 10 movies of the year. We're going to be doing things a little bit differently this year, uh, splitting things up into two parts, starting with The Outliers, um, which is the movies that only appeared on one person's list. Uh, and then for part two, we'll be talking about uh, the consensus picks as well as our number one choices. So we're going to be going out of order a little bit. But for clarity's sake, at the end of the show, we will go through our top tens in order just uh, so you all can hear our our full top tens. But we borrowed this idea from the people at Film Spotting. So I know that uh, that Adam Kemp and our Josh Larson aren't listening, but uh, shout out to them. Um, OK, and we are going to start our outlier section off. Let's see, with the person who did not get a chance to talk for the 11 through 20 section, and that is Clint talking about Spider-Man Far From Home. Tell us why you loved this uh, MCU entry, Clint. Hey, listen, uh, I've, I've been saving up. That's why I didn't talk. Uh, <laughs> I've just been been juicing up the whole time. Of course. Um, I, I, I just, I really liked, I, I mean, if we, if I look back at my filmography uh, preferences back uh, from college, which was when I, started quote unquote getting into movies was my freshman year of college. Um, I used to get into uh, really artsy movies and uh, Oscar Beatty movies. And that was all I really enjoyed, but something shifted in me recently. Maybe it's because I hit my head, but those types of movies don't appeal to me as much anymore. And now these kind of popcorny superhero, exciting movies are really all that I'm interested in now um, for the most part. But um, I think the reason that this movie stuck with me is because I, I kind of had to see it twice for one um, just because the first go around the theater was struck by lightning halfway through. And so I had to go <laughs> see it the next day. Um, but I, I really, I, I love Spider-Man. I was very interested to see about how they would, uh, they being in the MCU would pick up the pieces from their uh, biggest movie ever and the biggest movie ever. And for the most part, I thought that they did it successfully. Um, it was a very, a much more lighthearted movie than I was expecting. It went in places that I was not expecting. And I like Jake Gyllenhaal. Sorry, Elisha, who, uh, for a while that was that, well, that was your, that was your thing on Twitter was to talk about. I didn't know why I didn't like him though. Like (laughs) it just, 
He's fine, and he's great in this movie. I like him more now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was it was a good movie. I really liked it. My brother and I uh, both went to go see it together, uh, both times, uh, one and a half times, and um, really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I'm probably in the minority on this one, but I actually liked it more than Spider-Man: Homecoming. Um, I think the villain problem was solved I, for me. Yeah, with, I with too. And I agree. Here. I just thought that the the coming of age elements and the superhero story blended together a little bit better uh, in this movie than in the last movie. But yeah, it's it's great, and I'm glad that we're gonna we are gonna get a little bit more of Tom Holland Spider Man because I think this was my favorite performance from him as Spider Man thus far. So. Yeah, TBT to the summer when all that debacle happened on whether Spider Man was still in the MCU or not. Yeah, that was weird that that was this year. Yeah, you know? a lot happened this a year in film. It wasn't this year, actually, because this is 2020. But oh, uh, dang hey, there's our first OK, Scott, over to you for your over to you, Scott, for your number 10 Queen and Slim. Tell us about this one. Yeah. So Queen and Slim is a movie that, you know, you talked about Knives Out doing well. And, and of course, we will talk about Knives Out later on this podcast. But Queen and Slim is another movie that inspired it. I don't think anyone else here see this film. I did not. No. I, I still intend to, but I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. No. Well, this one actually did like knives out did really well around the thanksgiving box office and and so uh, having you know i came to it a little bit late but i really i really loved this film i talked about this with scott off air i think but there's kind of this been been this series of movies over the last couple years maybe starting with like moonlight where just really beautiful films like shot beautifully scored beautifully about you know the african-american experience and i think that this takes i think of like if bill street could talk is one that happened last year i think technically we saw it i saw it this year but uh that happened that came out last year and is about this experience that maybe is a little bit older in terms of the time period that it's set in but is um is a really beautiful film about about african-americans trying to find their place and make their way in american society and i think queen and slim is is another entry in that it's directed by melina matsukas and starring daniel kaluuya and oh my gosh, I always forget her name. Jody Turner Smith. I always want to say Smith Jody Turner. And it's Jody, <laughs> Jody Turner Smith. And it's her. So it's Jody Turner Smith's first acting, uh, like like lead role, uh, I believe, in a, in a major motion picture. And I think both her and Daniel Kaluuya are absolutely wonderful. I think this is another entry uh, for Daniel Kaluuya that just shows that he's one of the best young actors uh, in Hollywood. I mean, obviously with Get Out, it kind of brought him to the forefront of sort of film consciousness. And I think that he was amazing in Widows last year, did not get uh, that. I mean, that movie in general didn't get enough credit for being amazing, I think. And, and his very minor performance was one of the best parts of the movie uh, for me. But here he's absolutely spectacular. And this is a movie about kind of a like a, a more modern African-American experience within uh, our, our society today. And it's one of those things where I, when I first saw the trailer, I read the synopsis and, you know, the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie, I worried that this film would become very derivative. I mean, the, the whole setup for the movie, and this isn't a spoiler at all, is the fact that, you know, basically these two um, these two people had been on a date and it's actually like a Tinder date. It was like a uh, the, the first date and then they were driving home and they get pulled over by a police officer who then pulls the pulls a gun on them and basically what ends up happening is that the police officer shoots uh shoots the woman uh he daniel Kaluuya's character is able to knock the police officer and take the gun and ends up shooting the police officer as he charges them and kills the police officer and then the rest of the movie is about them uh on the run and them actually becoming a source of like iconic hope for the african-american community and it's a story about you know becoming like certain things happening to you that you have to deal with and a movie about becoming something that you didn't necessarily always plan to become or want to become or even what you want to be currently uh, even though you become that and the effects that you have 
uh, on uh, on people in society who look up to you and are similar to you. And I think that uh, I didn't really know where this movie was going, but the ending of the film too, again, kind of like another movie that we're talking about later is basically, I'm thinking of Uncut Gems, but like Uncut Gems, if you listen to our review, I think it is the perfect ending. The ending could have could go nowhere else. If the, if the ending of this movie didn't happen the way that it did, I think ultimately I would have felt not sure what the movie was trying to say. And uh, so I, in that sense, it was a good movie. It was when I first watched it, it actually was higher in my top 10 list. And maybe uh, it, it just settled on me a little bit. But again, it's a very beautifully shot film. The perf- lead performances are fantastic. And I think it just has a very uh, interesting message, uh, especially considering how I went, what I thought going into it and what I thought the movie was going to be. And it being something very different and exploring in, in some ways or in many ways, very different themes. And it's just also just a very engaging film. There's some uh, very good uh build of tension throughout the film as as they are on the run from you know other police officers and things like that so would strongly recommend queen and slim a couple of uh comments we have here so our friend john warren asks about our thoughts on the lighthouse john stay tuned one of uh the members of our stream here picked the lighthouse on their top 10 list so we will be getting to that one clint your sister asked about our thoughts on frozen 2 um scott oh, i haven't seen it yet actually scott i think you liked it more than the first one right I liked it much more than the first one. I didn't like the first one very much uh, at all. I think wow. that the I, I I think I can't remember. I think it might have been your review Eli, that I was reading. That I think we actually like have opposing views on this I film. That so. I think that the story of the first film is just horrible. Like not a good not a good plot story whatsoever. And I think that that problem is like for the most part really fixed in Frozen Two. I think it's actually a really interesting story and, and it goes away from like the the typical uh, you know. Disney princess versus, you know, very one dimensional bad guy. And I think that it's a story about exploring like who you are and where your origins are. And I think that does a lot better. It, it proves to be a lot more interesting story for me than the first one. I I just thought the songs were bad. <laughs> so I was like, eh, I, okay, no, not, we talked about this. We actually talked about the letterbox. I, how, the, the 1980s musical callback. That, yeah, that, that is song was song. amazing. That is a good song. It's the only one that I can remember. Um, other than that one that my niece oh. was singing a lot this Christmas, but uh, and then I just I don't know I the some of the, some of the themes that it's trying to explore are very interesting, but then I felt like not without spoiling anything, I felt like the the ending did not really bring that together in a satisfying way, and and also I don't know that I need that from a Frozen movie to be honest, like so like it it's it seemed like it was biting off more than it could chew in some ways. Um, it didn't super, super satisfy me, but it's fine. Like the first one, I, I agree with you. I don't think the story is incredible, but I love those songs and I will revisit that movie. I will probably never revisit the second one, but that's fine. Yeah. yeah. All right. Moving on from well, Queen any, and- any other thoughts on Queen and Slim, Scott? I, I know uh, yeah, no. from it. yeah. Sorry. Uh, frozen too. I, uh, I want to see Queen of, Queen of Slim. I'll be honest, the trailer didn't grab me. I don't know. Something about it just seemed a little weird to me. Like maybe this yeah. was just going to be a little too RC for my tastes. But hearing what you have to say about it, like I, I definitely want to make time to check this movie out. Yeah, it, it sounds good. Okay, uh, moving on from Queen and Slim then. Uh, we're going back to Clint for his number nine, Detective Pikachu. Tell us about that. <laughs> hey, guys, <Yes>. listen. Um <laughs> It's Pokemon. If you want to get artsy, go go see Queen and Slim. If you, you want to have crazy, if you want to get crazy, have a good time. <laughs> eat um, eat some uh, you know some candy and some popcorn and drink a Coke at the theater. Go see Detective Pikachu. It's a fun time. Don't tell me what to do, Scott. <laughs> you might you might be a lawyer, but 
Not yet. Uh, but I'm, but a, I'm po- a Pokemon trainer. But I'm a po- but I'm a Pokemon fan. Um. So uh, yeah, it was just a good time. I uh, I grew up liking Pokemon. I am. I still. Um, I'm I'm married, so I can say this. I don't need to find a mate, but I still have um you know Pokemon Go on my phone. Um, uh, she <laughs> she knows. Uh, she'll call me. Are you playing Pokemon in church, Clint? Yes, I am. Um, Do you guys go on walks together and play Pokemon Go together. We go on walks, but uh, it's ulterior motives. Uh, for ours is for exercise. Mine is to uh collect those KMs, but um. Yeah, it, it's just a good time. Another movie that I went and saw with my brother because no one else would go see it with me. Um, my wife certainly wouldn't, and I felt a little no. embarrassed about seeing it alone. Uh, but it was a good time. I, I like I like Pokemon, and it was cool to see them in real life. Unlike the I think it's more than a good time. I want you to defend it more. I, yeah. I, that is my defense is that it, I had it fun. It's like you're embarrassed, and I don't want you to be. It's okay, just that's it's fair in, enough. I, it's, I like it. Like it, it might look like I'm embarrassed because my lighting makes me look red, but um, mm, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was a fun time. I guess my um, mo for watching movies in 2019 it was it, it kind of fell into two categories for me. Movies that stuck with me were movies that I enjoyed, and the movies that were just fun to watch were kind of kind of fell into my top ten. Scott, I think you liked this one a little bit as well. Yeah, I, I did enjoy the experience, certainly. I, th- I mean, ultimately, I think it fell way down my list. It was my number 59. Granted, that's out of 98, uh, so it, that's not terrible. I mean, I don't think I've seen that many movies in five years. <laughs> that's okay. It's not. It's really not meant to be a It's just to put it in context. Know, like, it, ended up falling, it ended up falling down my list, because at the time, I think it was in my like top you know, 30 or, or, or so or some, something around there. And I, I will say that I think that the realization of of the world in, in sort of like you know CG animated live action uh, form is gorgeous. Like the 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 Rhyme City and I guess the landscape around Rhyme City because not the whole the whole movie doesn't entirely take place within Rhyme City is is beautiful. I really loved the visuals of the film and as much as hesitation as I might have had with seeing Pokemon in sort of like li- live action form. Uh, it, it, I thought they looked really good. Like I thought, I thought they were done really well. Yeah, they didn't um, look nasty or anything. It, yeah, they didn't look like cats. I know that's kind of yeah. like, but I want to reiterate, reiterate that. And then, yeah, like Ryan Reynolds as the voice of Detective Pikachu. Another thing that I was like really skeptical about the fact that I don't think I'd be able to not, you know, hear or see Deadpool in, in the performance. Like I thought it worked really well. Yeah. I think the story kind of com- like does completely fall apart, but that's not the reason that you go see this movie uh, ultimately. And so what you're saying, Clint, around the fact that you had a really good time watching this film, like I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, the film is probably exactly what you wanted it to be. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, yeah. I wasn't going in wanting to feel anything. Wanting cinema. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I wasn't expecting art. I just wanted to be entertained. Yeah. And Martin can keep cutting the Irishman. We'll go watch detective Pikachu. Anyway. That's right. I, I've, I will say I'm not a big Ryan Reynolds fan, but I think he's so good in that movie. I don't know what what it is about his performance that it just works perfectly and just paired with the absolute perfect design of how Pikachu looks. Elisha, it, I can, I can remember too. when the trailer first came out, um, you texting me and saying that this is going to be the best movie of 2019. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yep. And it was... Yeah, it was. Mm, I'm looking at the <laughs> list right now. <laughs> Apparently um, not. In my top thirty for sure. Why wow, did I leave that off my number one? Crap. 
Yeah. Check back in on the comments. Um, John Warren has apparently reported me to the bar for not oh, saying 18. loud loud enough that I uh, that I was not a lawyer yet. Um, and then Nick Miller was also a fan of Ryan Reynolds' performance. So there you go. You're in good company, Nick. Um, good. Or maybe you're in good company, Scott and Eli and Clint. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't. I just didn't really care about this movie because I'm not a I'm not a uh, Pokemon fan. A Pokemon uh, fan. I'm not a Pikachu and I'm not a Pokemon fan. I never have been as a kid. So I, I went to the movie. I was, I thought the trailers looked funny. I, I wanted just to, to have some laughs and, you know, maybe a, a good story that I could uh, connect to despite not being a Pokemon fan. And I think there were some laughs, but the story and the characters just didn't really interest me. Uh, but I'm not who this movie is for. So take that with a heavy grain of salt. I mean, I um, love Catherine Newton, but I, the character is not a, not yeah. a good one in this film. Not not the right role for her, yeah. but um, okay. Moving on now from Clint's number nine, we're going back to Scott Shelton. Uh, just ping pong between the two of them. Uh, Scott yes. Shelton's number nine is Honey Boy. Tell us about this one, Scott. Yeah, you know, Honey Boy was one of those movies that I saw. I came to it a little bit late. I, I think I, I came to it after Thanksgiving, so it's towards the end of its theatrical run. And I'd heard lots of good things about it, and I wasn't sure that this movie was going to be for me. Like, I'm not the biggest Shia fan, I, you know. I don't know if anyone is that big of a Shia fan these days, but I appreciated that like since Transformers, he's been trying to do uh, different stuff. And I found his sort of performance art <laughs> to be kind of funny in, in a laugh at, not with kind of way uh, over the past few years, the stuff that the random stuff that he's done. But this was, you know, this, for those of you who aren't familiar with what Honey Boy is, Honey Boy is directed by Alma Harrell and it's written by Shia LaBeouf and it's, it's semi-autobiographical. It's about growing up as a child star. And it really kind of, juggles two parallel timelines one with Shia LaBeouf as like a 20 early 20s something uh, actor played by Lucas Hedges and going through this whole process of you know starring in movies but also dealing with addiction uh, you know in in rehab for a large part of the film in this in this timeline and then the other timeline is when he's a kid like I think he's probably eight nine ten maybe early teenage actually yeah probably early teenage years like 12 11 12 or 13 something like that and that's played by noah jupe and in the earlier timeline uh noah jupe's shy version of shia is with his father like is is with uh his father and that father is played by shia labeouf so shia labeouf playing his own father in this film and the fact that it was written by him semi-autobiographical i wasn't really quite sure what to expect like i didn't know if this was going to be some sort of like just like self-justification piece or apology piece or what it was going to be but what i ended up watching was i mean this movie's super short it's like 90 91 minutes a very brief film and this is coming off a movie i think i'd seen like 10 movies in a row that were over like two hours and i was like wow this is going to be great this is under 100 minutes um i'm really excited to see this film and what i got like affected me way more than what i expected i think that the performances uh, from all three of the main members of the cast, Shia LaBeouf, Noah Jupe, and Lucas Hedges are all fantastic. And I think the story that it tells is one of, you know, again, maybe this is a recurring theme in movies that I've enjoyed this year, but really like coming to terms with who you are and like understanding who you are. And I think that you see that in both timelines in different ways. You have Noah Jupe's younger version, just trying to understand like, you know, is my father someone who's like actually looking out for me? Like, is this, is this someone who I like respect, who I want to be around, uh, who, who is looking out for my best interests, uh, especially given like the, you know, emotional or verbal, uh, damage that, that they both kind of do to each other. And I think there's some really raw scenes. You talk about some scenes that are hard to watch in, in marriage story, which we'll talk about later on. I think there's some scenes, some arguments that are really hard to watch in this film as well. And then the later timeline, again, with exploring similar themes in a different way with Lucas Hedges's version of Shia, 
in rehab and coming to terms with the fact that he's really good at like, and, and this is coming from Luke Sedge, like being really good at acting, right? But having this part of you that maybe makes you good at acting that ultimately is deteriorating your own mental health is really bad for you and is leading down a path that's really unhealthy and coming to terms with those things. I really enjoyed this movie. And the longer that this movie has sat with me, uh, the more fondly that I look back at it and think that this really is one of the best films of 2019. Anyone else see it? Yes, I saw no. it. Um, <clears throat> I also really enjoyed it. I I thought Noah Jupe was so good, like some of the best kid acting I've seen in a long time. Um, and I don't know. I, I saw some criticism of people being like, it. it is very much on Shia's side. And I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. Like it's not... it. Like you said, it's semi autobiographical. It's not. It's not necessarily like Shy's life story as much as it is him framing um, these these themes through his own life. And I just, uh, I really enjoy his performance as his dad too. Yeah. It's so strange. It's fantastic. Uh, yeah, he looks he looks so weird, but it just works. And it's just so interesting seeing like you know that he was living in poverty while he's shooting even Stevens. It's like. No, having grown up kind of with Shia LaBeouf in that way, it, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to watch anything that he's been in in the same way. I was watching some Even Stevens like on Disney Plus like a couple of days after seeing it, and just like thinking about this movie, like that's crazy that he would shoot this and then go down to his home to his like abusive father in, in this like janky little apartment. But yeah, I, yeah. I really enjoyed that movie too. I'm glad it was in your top ten. And Scott, like for for reference for you, like honestly, some parts of this film feel very Florida Project. Um, mm-hmm. Honestly, like there, it's mm-hmm. so what he's what he, Eli's referring to when he says going back to their drinking little apartment. It's actually like a motel where there's like a bunch of different okay. families oh, yeah. in um in different units, and there's these kind. Of, there is like some. And Willem Dafoe plays the kindly hotel owner. No, we so oh, probably, but he, he never makes an appearance. Owner. <laughs> yeah the kindly lighthouse owner um <laughs> no so there's no there's no motel owner in this case but there is a relationship between noah jupe shy and someone else in the motel uh that's explored mm-hmm. which i think uh, is cool. a really interesting part of the movie which i didn't really quite know what to make of at first but then i think yeah, it, it shocked me but it was very interesting too yeah yeah this is high on my list of ones to check out um mainly because i really enjoyed what shy did in the peanut butter falcon as well this year which is in my top 30 i think another movie that was in my top 30 so yeah. uh definitely going to check this one out when i get a chance um and now i think it's my turn um finally you yeah. get to stand hard for this one uh, okay my number eight <laughs> under the silver lake uh we said that no one is making movies like ryan johnson truly no one is making movies like david robert mitchell is um i absolutely love his last movie it follows it was in my top 10 of the decade and this was his long-awaited follow-up. This was really this was the movie that A24 didn't want you to see because first they kept pushing back the release date, then they released it to like two theaters, and then they basically just quietly dropped it on Amazon Prime, didn't make a big fuss about it, didn't tweet about it like they do about The Farewell or Uncut Gems or any of their other movies this year. They wanted to hide this movie from you, and that is a shame because this is a strange but kind of beautiful, wonderful, funny film um, about this really creepy dude played by Andrew Garfield who um, meets this random girl who lives below him in an apartment who has moved in, uh, has this one sort of strange encounter with her. uh, And then she goes missing and he tries to track her down. And it's this weird sort of surreal odyssey through LA um, and kind of tearing down uh, notions of Hollywood and uh, the lack of originality maybe in stories nowadays and maybe questioning, uh, 
really like the meaning, the meaning of life, the purpose of life, like are some of the mysteries that we create for ourselves, some of the questions that we create for ourselves to answer, are they even worth answering? I think that's the, one of the challenging things that this movie poses maybe at the end of the film. I think it's probably my favorite Andrew Garfield performance. I think he's just creepy, but also really funny. Like the way that he runs is really like absurd. And I don't know, he, he really buys into what Mitchell is doing here. And as always with Mitchell's films, they're beautiful to look at. Mike Jalakis is his cinematographer that he always works with. Um, and sort of the Hollywood dreamscape that he creates here um, is it's a shame that we didn't get to see this on the big screen because it would have looked spectacular. The score by Disaster Piece is one of my favorites of the year. Um, this really sort of lush, um, orchestral score but also has these like synthy moments like there's a really there's a moment in the score that i love basically when uh andrew garfield has like pieced together a clue and he's he's basically pieced it together by using like a nintendo power map from a magazine and like holding it up to a cereal box but like there's this moment where he puts these two maps together and like you know locates what he's looking for and as he does the score makes this little like digital sound like you're you're collecting coins on on mario kart or something and on mario and it's it's like i love it um it, it's it's really kind of clever and funny and yeah this movie it's it's out there it's not for all tastes but it's already seems to be going under a sort of undergoing sort of a critical reevaluation because it kind of got middling reviews when it came out but i've seen this movie popping up in multiple top top 20 and even top 10 lists it was in the top 10 list over at the av club um and so i hope that in the coming years this will become kind of a cult classic because i think it has all the trappings of a cult classic um and it just need it just needs to reach more people i think so check it out i think it's still on amazon prime well i think the reason scott the reason why a24 i don't think it's that they didn't want you to see it is that they honestly it didn't is. know who to market this to because this movie is <laughs> not me. for <laughs> well, this movie's not for most people. This this movie is like out there. It's 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 this movie is for like people who like are uh, like interested and intrigued by Hollywood, but like are like interested in like also tearing down like norms of Hollywood, like weird thing, like weird legacy traditions of Hollywood. And honestly, there's just like not that many people out there that are <laughs> that are that way. Uh, not that you're necessarily like exactly in that wheelhouse either. But th this film is just very is very strange. Uh, I we uh, like cats. I think this movie is great seen communally like i think seeing this with other people to have someone to talk about it with mm -hmm. is really important yeah. because Scott, if you... we, tr we trolled the reddit feeds for this movie like for the day a couple days after we saw it looking at all of like the conspiracy theories people had yeah and and honestly that's exactly what david robert, david robert mitchell wanted you to do <laughs> like he wants because he's trolling you by like trying to right. get you to figure out all, you go through all this yeah and so it's it, it's it's it was a good time to watch i think ultimately though this i have a hard time thinking of this movie in like a top 10 or top 20 list, because I think that large portions of this movie are actually quite boring. Like, I think it's just like hard. Like if I wasn't watching it with Scott, I would have been really bored out of my mind. I think for parts of this film, uh, like some of it just like going way over my head and feeling like way too pretentious, which I understand might be the point, but it didn't make for good. Didn't make for good watching and at, at for certain links of the film. And the ending is also really weird. I agree with Scott Shelton that this movie is exactly like cats. Um, that's, <laughs> that's what I heard. No, I'm just kidding. I, I saw it too. It didn't super work for me, but I may just not be in that slice of the population yeah. that it is for. It's thin. It's a thin I, slice. Yeah. I kind of, you were kind of sold me on it though. The way you were just talking about, it. I was like, 
sounds kind of like a great movie. Like I kind of need <laughs> yeah, to rewatch it. Maybe I, give it another chance. Yeah. I think maybe I was like, if I had seen it in the theater, I think I would have liked it a lot more, but I, I find myself getting kind of bored and not really following a lot of it, but this movie will um, never be in theaters. Yeah, I, I think I probably need to give it another shot. Who knows? Maybe it'll again, yeah. <laughs> classic midnight screening someday. Um, I, I'm here for it, but I don't uh, we like got, I, another I've never been a part of a cult classic making, but like, does this even get the initial like viewership of something like a Rocky horror picture show or, even cats yeah. like it's certainly like better than those movies though right like it's a it's a well-made movie <laughs> so yeah no sure, I, yeah. like i said i i think critics are reevaluating it now so maybe yeah. like with this movie popping up on lists people are going to be like oh i never checked that out because i thought it wasn't that good and then they're yeah. going to go watch it and be like oh this is actually kind of weird and dope i spaced mm-hmm. out for a second we are still talking about cats right yes, yes. okay uh, okay cool cool <laughs> Okay, Clint, uh, you better zone back in because we're going back to you for your number seven pick, a movie that actually just came out on Netflix, The Two Popes. The Two Popes. Those popes just can't get along, guys. Two popes uh, in this economy? Two... <laughs> <laughs> Listen, um, that's how I'm going to start with all of my reviews now. It's just listen. getting your attention. Hey, listen, guys. Um, I, you know, Scott, you've known me the longest. Um, Elisha, you've known me the second longest. And other Scott. I didn't know that. Um, it, it, the uh, another Scott, uh, you've known me very little. Um, you've known me a year, um, and I have a minor in theater, so I can appreciate good acting. And this movie is a tour de force of acting ability. It's not necessarily a very um, gripping movie in a lot of ways. I mean, we know where it's going to go, um, we know what's going to happen, but it's just very interesting to watch these two masters of their craft really kind of show off um and that's what really stuck out for me about this i'm also like oddly interested in the papacy and have like watched a lot of documentaries about like the the um the beginnings of it you know uh, and kind of where it was to what it is now and it just kind of fascinates me to some weird degree um but mostly i i think i appreciated this just because the two guys the, the two popes are very the the guys playing them are very good. That's really bottom line what it is. It was just good to watch two people at the height the height of their game really kind of just show off, I guess. Other yeah. thoughts on this one? Yeah, no. So I, I actually watched this just the other day. It was one of the latest edi- like last additions to my to my list for that I've seen so far at least. And I really enjoyed it. I thought that I mean, you talk about how it's not super gripping. I actually found it to be very gripping for the content that I was exploring because basically the entire movie is just a series of conversations with a couple flashbacks. I mean, that is the entire film. Yeah, and I think that it was actually quite gripping. Like I was wholly engaged with the film the whole time, and I think that's exactly to your point, Clint. That's exactly it's because of Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price. I think they're absolutely spectacular. As is it Pope Benedict the Sixteenth and uh, the Francis? Yeah, then Pope Francis. This is, I forget the number. Um, but yeah, <laughs> anyway, yeah, the soon to be Pope Francis, cause he's not, I guess he wasn't, he only at the very end of the film does he become the new Pope. Right. But, right. But, uh, yeah, Jorge Bergoglio, I think is, is the, is his real name. But anyway, uh, I think that especially Anthony Hopkins, performance, I just found it absolutely mesmerizing. I think he's, you know, he's had so many phenomenal performances over the years and this feels like a natural evolution for a lot of what he's done. And it's absolutely spectacular. Like I, I came in to this movie knowing very little about both of these popes because you know not being catholic and haven't been super interested in 
the papacy that much beyond like my high school European or world history classes. I didn't really know that much about it. And, and obviously those classes don't really cover modern, modern times that, that much. But for me, yeah, the, the story and the themes and the conversations that are being had, like, I think they expand so much further beyond just, you know, an interest for people, individuals who would identify as being Catholic. I think that the themes that they explore are more spiritual and philosophical in nature. And the way that the conversation is framed around these two people who are like diamond, like philosophically diametrically opposed to each other within like the Catholic church, I found it super interesting. And then uh, the narrative that it goes down and, and these individuals talking with each other and where the conversation starts to like where the conversation ends is really just really interesting. I don't know, I really know a better way to put it. There's very few other characters and actors in the film. There's, you know, I guess the younger version of Jorge Bergoglio, who's, I forget the actor's name, but he's like really the only other main player yeah. in the cast. And I think he does a really good job. I mean, my only, my only like concern or hesitation with this movie is that as great as Jonathan Price is, why is a Welsh actor playing an Argentinian, um, like an Argentinian, like cardinal? Like I just he, don't understand. Because he why. looks like him. Well, I mean, kind of, but it just felt weird. It why felt didn't really they weird. cast a single American actress as one of the March sisters? You know, I <laughs> thought about that the other day, and I literally, I meant to bring that up, and I was like, it was just so weird that yeah. everyone was British in the movie when it was. Uh, but anyway, I I was really bummed because like five minutes after we stopped recording the other day, I remembered that that I wanted to say that. But yeah, no, it, it was just very off putting to see to like remember that like okay, yeah, that's Jonathan Bryce. He's Welsh. Why is he playing in you know an Argentinian? But that's really my main com complaint with the movie, other than the fact that like Acting. yeah, well, <laughs> yes, I, I I loved that he acted as a different uh, a different ethnicity, but that's cool. Eli, did you see this one? I did not. Um, I watched yeah. the first couple minutes and then got sidetracked and <laughs> haven't gone back to it. I still want to. Um, that's my problem with streaming is I so often just stop yeah. watching movies because I have to go to the bathroom or something and then <laughs> I don't come back to it. But it sounds like I would enjoy it and I want to check it out. Yeah, I feel that. Um, and I haven't checked it out either. But again, it's right there on Netflix. Someday I'm just going to click on it and it's going to happen. But uh, mm -hmm. who knows when that day will come. Uh, okay, I think we're coming back to me now for my number seven um, or number six, rather. Um, we'll get to Eli eventually. He just has some uh, some outliers high on his list. Um, Wild Rose is a movie that I absolutely love. Um, this is it was it came in at Scott's number 11, almost made his top 10. Um I, I admit that I'm a, a sucker for these types of like uplifting sort of musical dramas. Um, this this one in particular is the story of this woman, Rose Lynn, who is a Scottish woman that uh, has been in jail. She gets out of jail at the start of the, the movie. She has a family to care for, but she also has this dream of moving to Nashville and becoming a country singer. And the whole movie is kind of about the tension between her life in Glasgow and her family responsibilities that she has now, and basically just staying out of her own way, you know, being the crim convicted uh, criminal that she, she was um, and pursuing this dream of, of being a singer and moving to Nashville. Um, even when there may not be a lot of opportunities for someone like her in, in Scotland, other than this uh, one honky tonk club that she sings at called the Grand Ole Opry. Um, but it's just it's just a great, uh, incredibly crowd pleasing, satisfying movie. Um, Jesse Buckley, who plays Rosalind Harlan, gives like one of the best performances of the year, if not the best performance of the year. Um, she's absolutely a, a joy to watch throughout the movie. Starts off as like this, frankly, sort of unlikable, hard scrabble character who um, makes some decisions where like why like make you want to pull your hair out. Like you know you have this life here. Or, 
you know, so on and so forth that, that she kind of frustrates you, but you, you grow to love her sort of stubborn charm uh, by the end of the movie. And the songs are brilliant. Um, I just got the soundtrack for this movie on vinyl for Christmas um, and I've been listening to it and it's fantastic. Uh, a lot of them are covers of old country songs, but there's also some new songs in there. And in particular, this final song, Glasgow, which um, I will throw some chairs or burn some furniture or something if it doesn't win the Oscar for best original song this year. It's not even you better. Close. hope it even gets nominated, dude. It is on the short list. Yes, I know. I know, it, but I'm just saying you might be burning stuff early. I, okay, well, that would be it not winning. So uh, I, maybe I'm burning stuff early, but um, I probably it probably All won't right. win just knowing the Oscars, but um, it's it's a beautiful song. It's better than Shallow was last year for me. I just love the song. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> Hold on now. Bold claim. I mean, well, Shallow, Scott, Scott, Scott didn't me think Shallow was the best song in, in A Star in Is Born. So. Yeah, so, yeah um, I struggle with that, but okay. Um, but the whole movie is fantastic. And the scene where she sings Glasgow, like I had heard the song before I actually saw the movie and I really love the song, but it takes on a new meaning when you see the journey that Rosalind goes through and the what the lyrics mean in the context of the movie as she sings it at the end of the movie in this sort of wonderful, 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 almost like fairy tale like ending to the movie that I think the movie does earn uh, because it is really believable and realistic throughout. Um, and yeah, this again, another movie not enough people saw, I don't think, but I think it's a real crowd pleaser. And if this movie was directed by someone bigger than Tom Harper, if it starred someone bigger than Jesse Buckley as the lead, I think we'd be talking about it for Oscars because it isn't a star is born type story. Um, and it's a completely winning one for me. I love Wild Rose. It's an A Star is Born-like story, but man, the story goes different places, though. Like the end, I mean, the, the ending location of the story is totally different. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you say fairy tale ending. And in, in some ways, like, yeah, it definitely has a fairy tale ending because I, mean, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler, but basically the end of the movie is flat, like, flashes forward in time briefly. And then you have this one scene you know, where she's performing the song Glasgow. And I think that one of the things I liked about it is that, yes, it's a fairy tale ending, but like the rest of the movie, it's also still very realistic. Like, it's not like she... I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to go too deep into spoilers, but like, it's it's not like some like she has achieved outlandish fame by the end by mm -hmm. the end of the film, and that's something that it, yeah, it felt like true. even even the fairy you know the quote unquote fairy tale ending of the story, which you know again I think there is some there is some credit to calling it that because there is some some wish fulfillment uh, involved with the ending, but it, it still feels grounded in a reality that's possible, and that's one of the themes that I really loved about this film is that it's about this woman who has gone through her own set of struggles in life and you know choices that she's made early in her life has, has inhibited her ability to follow the, the, her dreams to the extent that she wants to and a lot of the movie is about one coming to terms with that and prioritizing your life in a way that will bring you realistic fulfillment but then two also you know understanding what is real like being happy with with real and setting realistic goals and, and achieving realistic goals and being able to balance all aspects of your life that you know the cards that have been dealt to you and i think that it does really well i agree jesse buckley gives a really fantastic performance i think there is a zero percent chance she gets nominated for any awards but yeah. uh it's it was, it was a really strong showing and, and she's also someone who had a really strong year because she was also one of the stars in chernobyl which yeah. obviously got a lot of acclaim around the Emmys and also we'll, we'll maybe get some, get some awards come golden globes here in just a few days, but probably some mini series. Yeah. Yeah. Mini series category is tough this year. So yeah, we'll, we'll see if it, if it, if it comes out uh, with any awards, but no, I think that overall it's, a, it is a fantastic movie would, would recommend it. I, I personally don't mm. think it's as good as a star is born, but um, it's still up there and definitely worth seeing. 
yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. That's another one I probably need to revisit because I was, I, I kind of turned it on as like a, uh, oh, this seems like a fun movie. Like I can do this while I'm folding laundry or something. And then I kind of got sucked in like halfway through. I was like, this is really good. But um, I, like you said, Scott, I really appreciated the realisticness of particularly the ending that you don't see in a lot of similar movies about stardom and and music movies i guess um i i always like movies about musicians and i think they're better when they're fictional like i'm kind of tired of seeing like biopics about famous musicians and uh i really enjoyed that one um i i thought i thought jesse buckley was really good too i'm excited to see what she does in the future i hope i hope this jump starts her career but i mean people need to see it i guess yes that that is the important thing and it is on I want to say Hulu. It's on a streaming service. So um, go go seek it, it out. Amazon, maybe. Amazon. No, it was Hulu. You're right. You're okay. Right. Go If you have Hulu, go check it out because it's it's great. Um, all right. We're over to Clint now. We bent the rules a little bit to let him uh, include this one. But uh, he has included the Dave Chappelle comedy <laughs> special. One of the most talked about comedy specials of this year, Sticks and Stones. Uh, tell us why you love this one, Clint. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I did have to clarify with Scott. I was like, is this, does this count? Apparently Scott Shelton uh, is so irate about this. That he I know. And, and, and Hey, <laughs> if that's his prerogative, that's okay. Because yeah. uh, like you said, it was talked about um, on both ends of the spectrum of people either loving it or people really hating it. And as somebody that I love Dave Chappelle, uh, he was actually in Chattanooga several weeks ago. Um, and I really wanted to go see him, but his tickets were $200 a piece and I didn't want to spend that much money. Um, yeah, I know it's kind of outrageous, but, um, I really, really do like Dave Chappelle. I think that I, and I can fully acknowledge that his, uh, comedic styles are not for everybody. Um, that, and that is fine. Um, but the type of shock comedy that that's what i like i like that stuff i like to be kind of put in a weird uncomfortable place by the things that i listen to uh that's what that's what makes me laugh maybe it's a little juvenile of me but that that's what gets me and um i i also want to reiterate that a lot of the stuff if you have seen the special a lot of the stuff that he says on a philosophical level i don't agree with but um I can also acknowledge that it's entertaining and that it made me laugh on some gut. Um, what, what, what is it? On, on like a cave, a, a, some visceral caveman level. Yeah. <laughs> like, Ooh, that the fact that somebody said that it made me laugh. I've seen it a few times and I really like Dave Chappelle. Um, he's kind of stuck with me for a long time. I can remember um, growing up, but when the Chappelle show was kind of, I guess it's in its reruns, uh, when I was in middle school, I was watching on Comedy Central, and I remember walking into my dad watching TV, and I look up, and he's watching The Chappelle Show, and if I, we made eye contact, and it was like, you two, we're not so different, you and I. Uh, we're both watching The Chappelle Show. But yeah, I liked it. Anyone else see this? Nope. <laughs> yeah, I have not. <laughs> That's Me okay. either. That's um, okay. When it comes to stand-up comedy, I tend to be more of a clips person than sit down and like watch an entire yeah. special. I think it, there's diminishing returns for me after a certain point when you when you watch the thing all the way through. But uh, like people sure. love Dave Chappelle; he's a funny guy. So um, maybe I'll check out some clips when I'm YouTube surfing someday. Yeah, uh, yeah. The only the only stand-up specials that I watch all the way through at this point are John Mulaney's. So yeah, 
I, I love Mulaney. I was about Clint's not going to argue with you there. No, yeah. I'm definitely not. Uh, and Elisha knows this, that I'm like an avid stand-up watcher. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that just, it felt natural, of course. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, stand-up special on Netflix. And I like Dave Chappelle. Of course, I'm going to watch it a few times. Check out Dog Stepfather on YouTube. Dog Mark, Stepfather? Mark Ellis, yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Mark Ellis is stand-up special. Close personal friend of ours. Not really, but we, we have. Hey, Scott's profile picture. picture for a while was yeah. with Mark Ellis. So. Um, okay. Uh, moving on. Keeping the comedy train going, Scott. To your number six, a movie that I know you're excited to talk about because for for a few months this year you communicated with people using only gifts from the movie Booksmart. Um, yeah. So true. tell us about why you love this movie so much. You watched it like three or four times. Three or four, please, Scott. I saw it five times this year. Okay. Uh, yeah, I watched it. Uh, I think I watched it three times in theaters, and I've watched it a couple times outside of theaters since. I mean, this is the movie that I watched the most in in 2019, and I think that is because the rewatch value of this movie is as as high as any movie other movie this year and if not the highest uh, e- easily for me i mean i watched i guess technically i watched Avengers Endgame more in theaters uh, just because you know it was an amazing the experience of watching it in theaters is so powerful i think especially if you can watch it with a full audience we'll talk about that later but book smart is just a phenomenal comedy it's the directorial debut of olivia wilde who has plenty of acting credits. I remember I first came across her when she was in a couple seasons of House, and then I've seen her in things here and there since. And maybe more recently, she's had some questionable acting roles, and I'm not even talking about Richard Jewell. Uh, I'm talking about, like, what is it? Life Itself last year. Oh, gosh. Which yeah. was, I mean, I didn't see it. I don't think you saw it either, Scott, but no. widely thought of, critically at least, as one of I the worst saw movies. Oh, <laughs> so bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, Olivia Wilde oh. gets behind the camera, and creates kind of the modern super bad, basically kind of the 2019 version, 2019 female version of super bad. I think it's way more nuanced and complex than that and combines a little bit more than, than what super bad does. But that is the way it was kind of popularly described for me. It's just one of those experiences where I've never had more fun introducing a movie to other people. Like I saw, I saw the movie. I saw. I actually saw an early screening of this movie. I got invited to an early screening of this movie uh, through like AMC or no, it wasn't even thing like that. It was just the fact that they were having an early screening, and so I got to see it like a few weeks before Scott. And Scott was very upset about this at the time. And uh, no, I, I watched this film, and I just thought that the performances of Beanie Feldstein, who plays the lead Molly, and well, one of the leads, I should say, and then Caitlin Deaver, who's already come up in another movie that you talked about in terms of uh, them that follow Scott. She was all she, Caitlin Deaver's in that film. It, I think that she plays Amy, uh, the other lead in, the, in this movie, and they both just do a phenomenal job. I mean, their relationship and their chemistry, along with the chemistry of the rest of the cast. I mean, whatever atmosphere Olivia Wilde was able to capture on set to, to get every all of these different, uh, you know, younger actors and actresses comfortable with each other. I mean, it shows in spades on screen. I mean, the chemistry they have, the script, who, I forget who actually wrote this movie, but the script is is spectacular. Yeah, it's Katie Silberman, who also wrote uh, Set It Up last year. Right, that, that, yeah, I mean, that would make sense. Like, yeah, so I think the script is phenomenal. I think that it has some very memorable, and very, it's a very quotable movie, I guess is a better way to put it. And I think that the things that it explores are simultaneously lighthearted, but also quite serious, if you want to think about it. And just the most some of the most memorable comedic characters in 2019 by far. Uh, I mean, you can go down the whole list. I mean, we've talked about Molly and Amy, but Triple A, uh, Gigi, who I haven't mentioned yet, Billy Lord plays you know, in one of the best supporting roles of the year that's not being talked about whatsoever. Oh, yeah. This comical character whose name is Gigi, who is this kind of archetypal rich white girl 
who is just absolutely hilarious, pops up time and time again throughout the course of the whole movie. There's also this character named Jared, who is this kind of um, outcat, like outsider like kind of guy who's just trying so hard to make everyone be his friend, which I think is hilarious. Uh, sorry, hilarious. Noah Galvin plays a character whose name I'm actually forgetting right now, uh, who has just some incredible jokes. Uh, he, Noah Galvin being the person who replaced yeah. Ben Platt on uh, Dear Evan Hansen on Broadway. Sorry, what were you going to say, Scott? I was saying, yeah, he's the, I was trying to remember who he was, but he's the guy who sings You Ought to Know at the party. Yeah, and he, yeah. Yeah, he also has some great jokes. His like, entrance in the film is in, is in class, one of the early scenes in, in the classroom, and he has some great jokes about Shakespeare in the park and, and yeah. things like that. He, just, just phenomenal, memorable characters with great one-liners and a really heartfelt message at the end of the story, too, that I think really tied it up and made it a, a really special movie. And that's why it ends up so high on my list. And honestly, Scott, just, just, just surprised it didn't make it higher on your list. I mean, I was happy to see it in your top 20. Uh, but I also thought it was going to land higher. But that just shows how good of a year it was for movies. Yeah, truly. Uh, Eli, you're a fan of this one? Uh, Booksmart freaking rules. I yeah. love Booksmart. It did not. It got bumped out of my top 10. It was my number 11. But um, I I only saw it once. I need to see it again. Because, I'd recommend like, seeing it like four or five it. or six times. <laughs> um, I just thought I love the way it like has every like typical basic high schooler archetype. But it like humanizes them in a way that you've never seen it before i feel like like every i i end up loving every character in this movie by the end of it even though it starts out like your basic like gg you said is like your basic like rich white girl but like it just really fully fleshes out all these fun characters in a way that you don't see in most like studio comedies um yeah. i yeah and, and it's really well role. directed too <clears throat> yeah no absolutely sorry i interrupted you no, no, that's that's pretty much it. It's well, it's great. Everyone should see it. Yeah, and I was gonna say George is the name of that character. I was trying to think of Noah Galvin's mm. character. And oh his, yeah, his little partner in crime, Alan, is that they have a, an incredible little dynamic as well. Uh, that's that's you pretty funny. You ought to know, Alan. Yeah, you ought to know, Alan. <laughs> um, uh, no, it's it's great. And then I guess like the one last thing I want to say is that there are some like Olivia Wilde makes some interesting directorial choices to your you know kind of going, I think going what you're saying here, Eli, mm -hmm. and adds in some like really kooky scenes into this into this film and, and in some ways kind of like weirdly artsy and and at first on first watch seemed out of place to me but on the rewatches i think i really grew to appreciate mm -hmm. most of those scenes with one exception but i think that almost all of this movie works extremely well and also one of the things that hasn't mentioned is that you know yes hollywood is becoming a more inclusive space and in portrayal of, of lgbt characters but the fact that Amy, who's played by Caitlin Deaver, is like an openly gay character. And I think that it, that her coming to terms with her sexuality, yes, she's already out of the closet in in the movie, but her coming to terms and her relationships with other people, I think, is done really sensitively and really well. And this is one of the things that I think really stood out to me in this film. And yeah, no, I love I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, well, I was just going to say, like, the people who are saying it's just like book smart or sorry uh super bad for girls like i think it's so much better than super bad like yeah so i like super bad it makes me laugh but it, yeah. super bad is not doing the things that this movie is doing um, yeah no i echo what y'all have said it was my number 13 i love the movie agree about it being rewatchable i watched it twice in theaters um and yeah it's really funny uh that uber scene with jason sudeikis that we haven't mentioned is also oh, an absolute riot um not suitable for work yeah, but there are also some touching moments. Yeah, to, to your point, Scott, like this the pool scene. I I really love how this move, how that particular scene was staged in the way that Amy makes a discovery about something uh, in that scene. I think right up there with the pool scene from eighth grade last year. You know, we we just seeing a, a 
trend of of coming of age movies with good scenes at a swimming pool. So um, there you go. I love Booksmart, my number thirteen. Um, and now I think we finally get to go to Eli. Um, the Beach Bum. I just watched this one the, the other day. Bum. Tell us why you love it. Um, the Beach Bum is such a weird movie, and I actually have not seen um, any of Harmony Korine's other movies. Um, good for you. I, yeah, I need Spring to. Breaker I need to. Uh, no, you I don't. don't. You I, really don't need we'll, to see his other movies. We'll find out. We'll find out. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just loved this movie. It was one of the first movies I saw this year, so I honestly like can barely remember anything about the plot itself <laughs> because it was so long ago. It's very much just like you're hanging out with Matthew McConaughey for um, an hour and a half, and it's it's so. Uh, I think his performance is great. You get to see Martin Lawrence. Uh, maybe his best performance of all time is this little boat captain <laughs> goes on like a shark tour um, in Captain Whack, I believe is his name. Yes, um, but I've always had a soft spot for just kind of the the trashy Florida aesthetic. Um, kind of like I I need to see the Florida Project because I, oh my I feel like I would enjoy that too. But um, I think this movie is it really is like, similar aesthetics? Um, <laughs> Like it's, Scott, uh, you, you've seen both. You've seen both. Like I understand where you're. I understand the place that you're coming from. Interesting. No, it's not shot similarly no. in any way. The, that's not what I'm saying. But that sort of a vibe, like just trashy Florida people. Yeah. <laughs> um. I I like. I feel like this movie is shot really beautifully in a way. Um. And it's just. It, it's the whole vibe of the movie is just very much my thing. I think uh, Zac Efron is so funny in it. Um, Jimmy Buffett and Snoop Dogg are also great. They're Snoop Dogg steals every scene um, that he's in. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> and Jimmy Buffett is so funny yeah. to me too. Um, but yeah, I just remember smiling the whole time in the theater and just being so happy. Um, it's just about a dude who thinks that everything's going to be okay in the world. And I think that's a movie that we need in this point in time. It's, it's the chillest movie Ever, ever seen maybe it's like um, stoner paddington yeah no i i think the shagginess of this movie is maybe why it loses a few points for me but it is really funny like there there are a lot of laughs and the supporting characters like you mentioned the martin lawrence the uh, snoop dogg cameo the well more than a cameo but uh and then the zach efron playing creed for uh for Zach <laughs> for matthew mcconaughey and, and referring to it as christian metal uh it's one of the hardest <laughs> that i've laughed this year um uh, yeah. He, yeah he's he's really funny um and yeah it's just a, a wild movie uh, just about this guy's misadventures mcconaughey like at, at peak mcconaughey like this is this is him in his natural element i feel like in this movie maybe more so than he ever has been um and yeah g give it a shot it, it, i think you'll probably know after the first 20 minutes if it's for you or not yeah <laughs> um but uh if it is i think you're gonna like it uh, i i had a good time with it even if it's not like one of my favorites of the year we're gonna stick with eli yes uh your number four a movie that was in scott and i's top 20 but didn't make the top 10 ad astra the james gray film um Ad Astra is fantastic. Um, it's yes. I, I just loved um, Brad Pitt's performance in this movie. It's, it, there's another movie in my top ten list that I loved his performance as well. But um, it's a very like quiet movie, um, similar in a lot of ways to I think First Man, which I loved last year, which I know um, was kind of hit or miss for a lot of people. But um, I, I I guess I really like quiet space movies about um men dealing with their emotions in space but um it's it's very much a daddy issues movie about um you know brad pitt is searching for his lost father in space and then um just what happens when he finally encounters him i won't spoil anything but i think that's where the movie just really comes together 
Um, but I, I really also just, uh, I think it's got one of the coolest action scenes of the year with yes. the, uh, <laughs> they're on the moon and they're getting chased by uh, moon pirates. Mad Max on the moon. Not a move, not something that I was expecting. And there's for other people that haven't seen it, there's something else, another scene in this movie that I was like, What? I did not know this is what we were doing in this movie. (laughs) Um, it's full of surprises, but like I said, it's very quiet at times, but then all of a sudden, the strangest thing ever will happen. Um, and then just beautifully shot, I think. Um, uh, and then Tommy Lee Jones is also great as well, but um, yeah, I, I just really loved it. Have you seen The Immigrant or Lost City of Z? No, Lost State of Z is on my list. I need to watch that ASAP. Um, I don't really know anything about The Immigrant, though. Oh, good. A lot of people really like it. But yeah, no, I like Ad Astra a lot. Um, it was my number 18. And uh, you compare it to First Man. And I I like First Man to an extent. I like the technical achievement of the movie. I think I mm. had a, trouble, uh, a little trouble connecting with Neil Armstrong in that movie. And I think what this movie did better for me is that it actually sort of tried to get beneath the surface and explore what is it about going to space that makes people so emotionally withdrawn. Like Mm -hmm. I think in first man, he was just kind of like emotionally withdrawn and it was just like, it was, it was there. And we were, we were just kind of supposed to connect to him and yeah, maybe they try to explain it a little bit, what's happened to his child, all of this stuff, but it didn't really hit as hard for me as the exploration did in in this movie, and yeah, I think Brad Pitt is great. Those action scenes are really interesting, and um, it's it's really beautiful to look at. And uh, Max Richter gives a, a great score as well for the movie. Um, yes, and yeah, it, it, uh, ultimately profound. Um, the the last scenes with him and Tommy Lee Jones, um, I you know, c- kind of maybe not where I expected the movie to end up, but I'm glad that that is how it ended up. And the last sort mm-hmm. of monologue that Brad Pitt has as the movie ends is really uh, quite good, I think. To go back to the first man comparison, the first man is very much a guy who doesn't know how to deal with his emotions, pouring his whole self into his job, which happens to be going to space. And then this is a man literally going to outer space to connect with his father. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they're they're very different in that way, but just kind of tonally, I feel like there were some similarities that I really enjoyed. But yeah, I think it, it, this movie was number. I think it was number eighteen on my list, or maybe it was. 17 it was 17 or 18 on my list i can't remember uh but basically i thought this film i agree brad pitt's performance is really good it's one of those movies where the longer that i've set with it kind of the opposite of honey boy i think that it's like a little bit overwrought in its philosophy i think that the i the long the more i think about it and, and this maybe i just need to go revisit it and i started watching the first half hour 45 minutes of this movie then ended up turning it off and and going to bed because i was just getting really tired because uh, it is it, like it, it's not that it's a boring movie but it is a movie that is in some ways slow and you need to be really kind of on like le- like really dialed into the film uh, to think about it, to experience it. And I will say for that reason, seeing this movie in, in theaters and I saw it in IMAX, like the, the weekend it came out was one, it was one of the most arresting, like visually arresting movies that I saw this year. Like absolutely gorgeous uh, cinematography and kind of vision realized by James Gray and his production team. And I think that part of that is, you know, just the the setting itself, this kind of like in like vague but did not so distant future. I think it literally says the the near future or whatever at the beginning mm-hmm. of the film where for its setting. And I think it, it creates an interesting world. One of the things that as much as I agree that I think the the film relies on coming together at the end, I think that one of those things for me and that the one that I've thought mo- most about is 
wondering if the the finale of the film actually really does piece everything together in a way that I found super satisfying. And clearly it did to an extent. I mean, it is in my top 20 of, of a year that I thought were fantastic movies. But I have still kind of, I think, am still left with a little bit of a question mark. And I really wish that they would cut out the last couple shots of the film like with him and his wife like coming back to terms with that i don't know if the movie really needs that especially because um that i mean that character is relegated so much in the movie i think that's something that the movie could have done well enough to cut out entirely almost i mean you can acknowledge that he had a former wife but i don't know if you need to actually like have these like flashback scenes and moments and stuff like that especially towards the end where i think the the movie has this really powerful note towards the end where with this kind of the resolution of his relationship with his father, not to spoil anything, but like, you know, obviously something happens there and, and he makes his way back to his ship and is shooting back toward earth. And I think that having that monologue that you're talking about, Scott, and just having that monologue there without some of these other scenes, I think might've left me with, with fewer questions than I'm left with. Cause I think that it just muddies the water a little bit there and asks a couple questions, but I totally agree with the sentiment that you're talking about. Uh, this movie is about a guy going to space to deal with his emotions you know, to kind of broaden things out a little bit and, and make it more com- comfortable rather than trying to hide from your emotions in space. Brad Pitt is, is going to space to, to deal with his emotions. And uh, I think that there's a wider message there that James Gray explores about, you know, people needing certain outlets to deal with their emotions when they don't feel like they can connect with the things that are immediately like, like physically geographically immediately around them. And s- space for some people is, is that when you feel out of place and and not and that you don't belong space could be a potential way to to deal with that and i think that's an interesting um an, an interesting perspective to take on a common question i think has come up in several movies uh over the last couple of years yeah i agree um it's it's a good one uh and i'm glad that we did get a chance to talk about it here because i liked it a lot even though i didn't make my top 10. um okay getting into the last few outliers here um we're on to my number three now uh dark waters this is, in my opinion, the most underrated movie of the year. Um, n- no one saw this movie. It wasn't really marketed that great. I don't think, I don't know that the trailers necessarily grabbed you and said, hey, this is one of the best movies of the year. Um, but nevertheless, uh, it is. And I, again, this is a movie that I'm kind of predisposed to like because it is a legal thriller, right? It's 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 a movie about one lawyer fighting the system. Um, and that's something that obviously resonates with me with where I am in my life. But um, I still was skeptical, like, because of the subject matter of the movie and the fact that it's about environmental law and, you know, chemical dumping by DuPont. And I just kind of, which are not subjects that really interest me, I'm not a science chemistry person at all. Um, so I, I was a little skeptical in that regard, but man, this movie is not just for me. I think this movie is for everyone. This is a movie that everyone should see, even if you're not going to like love the movie because of the stakes in this movie are like, what this movie suggests is that what DuPont has done could have implications for every single person in the world. And I am not exaggerating that everyone in the world could be affected um, by what uh, what DuPont has done and what this movie exposes. Uh, and Mark Ruffalo. Catcher. <laughs> Sorry. Mark Ruffalo plays this guy. Um, who this lawyer, Rob Balot, who basically just devotes like a decade of his life to this one case. And uh, it starts when this, you know, farmer from 
uh, Arkansas, I believe it is, played by Bill Camp in, in an incredible supporting performance, um, comes to him and, and asks him to to help him. And he says, look, you know, I were, I defend corporations. I don't do this. Um, and the rest of the movie is about him sort of connecting with the actual human beings who are involved and who are been affected by DuPont's actions and realizing that, hey, the law is not supposed to be about representing one side. It's supposed to be about doing what's right and achieving justice. And um, so he, he represents the people against, you know, the interest maybe of his firm. And Tim Robbins plays the head of his firm and has this one incredible scene in the boardroom where he just sort of shouts everyone down for um, for um, arguing with Rob about taking the case and for disagreeing with Rob about taking the case um, and just really sort of putting everyone in their place about what their priorities should be. Anne Hathaway, I think, is really good as Ruffalo's wife. She gets a, a great scene with Tim Robbins at a hospital. Um, the movie is just incredibly engrossing. It's directed by Todd Haynes. It's a very different movie for Haynes to make. His last movie was Carol, which I also love, but this is very different. But it still has the sort of sense of atmosphere that he has uh, in his films it's very beautifully shot by Edward Lackman. And uh, a lot of people have talked about this one scene that takes place outside of a Benihana saying it's the most beautifully shot Benihana that they've ever seen on film. And I, I guess I'd have to agree with that, but um, it's, it's a very well-crafted film in addition to just being a good story and good performances. Uh, and man, yeah, the emotional impact that this movie had on me was maybe more than any other movie this year. I, uh, I really identified with, the journey that Rob Ballot goes on. And I don't think you have to be a law student to do that. It's, it's a fantastic film that everyone should see. What kind of personal vendetta does Mark Ruffalo have against the DuPont family? though? <laughs> Where... uh, he, he just wants what's right. Uh, I guess. Like... I will say you, you bring that up. This, this movie does exist within one of my favorite subgenres of movie, which is movies where Mark Ruffalo goes through boxes of documents and comes <laughs> to shocking realizations um, yeah. and talks yeah. about how you know, they knew and, and they covered it up the whole time. Uh, how much it, slumping did he do? I yeah. Mean, slump <laughs> he slumped the entire film. It actually oh, is. Man. It's a very physical performance, which is one of the things that I like about it is you see the toll, like the physical toll that this case has taken on him uh, as the corporation and the corporate corporate lawyers that represent the corporation like are doing whatever they can to make sure that these people never get the money that they are, mm -hmm. um, you know, awarded. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great, like, if you like spotlight, another Mark Ruffalo documents movie, um, yeah, we, you and I saw together, Scott, we did. And that movie is incredible. Uh, Dark waters is not as good as spotlight, but that's a really high bar. Um, but it's, it's in that same vein. It's that sort of investigative boardroom, like legal thriller type movie. Uh, but it's great. Don't, don't, don't let the, uh, like potentially dry subject matter keep you from seeing it because they do a really good job of explaining it in the film too. Yeah, for me, I saw Dark Waters, and I'm not as hot on it as Scott. I think that, as much as I think the story is disturbing, and I guess I'll start on a on a on an anecdote that I have about this film. As I was walking out of the theater, and, and I told Scott this, I can't remember if I told this on the podcast or if I told this off air. But one of the first, so I'm like waiting outside the theater. The person I saw the movie with went to the bathroom, and I'm just kind of standing there waiting. And there's a woman who walks out of the theater behind me that said, "That's basically, hey Siri." Is Teflon still used in pans today? Like at like asking asking the question of whether or not there's this poisonous chemical in everyone's cookware. And I think that just kind of sums up the movie for for me. And, and that's like the key takeaway. And, and I think that it leaves that message. Like anyone who watches this movie, like you're probably going to be deeply disturbed uh, and go home and check whether or not your pots and pans have PFOA in them. And I think that, that for that reason and in that vein, the movie does a really good job. 
I do think it's a fantastic performance by Mark Ruffalo. I just think that this movie just maybe I understand that it's the story of this of this entire kind of case, this entire event, like over I mean, over almost 20 years, right? 15, 20 years. And I just think that there are certain elements of the movie that aren't given enough airtime earlier on for me to understand why it was important that we go back to it later in the film, like Mark Ruffalo's family life. I mean, absolutely non-existent for the first hour and a half of this film. Like there's a couple scenes with Anne Hathaway and his family. And that becomes a really important part. uh, Like, like I said, about an hour and a half hour, 45 minutes into the movie where it transitions from Mark, you know, Rob, Rob Balot, Mark Ruffalo's character, trying to take down DuPont and file this lawsuit and do this and do this work to all of a sudden, you know, five, like fast forwarding, you know, every few minutes we're fast forwarding a year to another scene and seeing the toll that it takes on his family life and how that a lot like moves forward and along. And it's one of those things where I understand it's the story of both Rob Blot and this entire case, but at the same time, it just felt like a little bit messier of a, of a story because of it. And if it had trimmed, trimmed down in certain elements and focused in other places, I think the, the weight of the story and the impact of the story for me would have been a little bit more poignant and a little bit tighter. And I think I would have appreciated some aspects of it a little bit more rather instead in, you know, the last act or half an act of the film, I was just trying to just trying to parse through what was important and what wasn't important. Yeah. I mean, I think we just had different reactions. I, yeah. I actually maybe the moment which emotionally affected me the most was this moment with him and his wife. So I guess the family stuff worked more for, for me than it did for you, but, um, yeah. Nevertheless, I think everyone should see this movie. Um, I don't think... Have either of you guys seen it? I have not. I have not, no. So we're trying to decide whether or not I want to prioritize it, and you guys didn't help because... (laughs) Because we have different different perspectives. Yeah, you have different... Um, I'll I'll probably get around to it. Do you want me to be the tiebreaker, Elisha? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Yes! I'll watch it. But Maybe. before you go watch it, just get, just throw out all your pots and pans and go by. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Du, Dupont's and Hickson, so that is in your. Well, Dupont's everywhere, man. Dupont's around the world. Oh, the, <laughs> the, uh, oh, the the most local one, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And the last thing I'll say is that on that note, like the the movie is extremely factually accurate. I read the New Yorker article, which it was based off of, after I saw the movie, and I was amazed <laughs> at how pretty much everything you see in the movie happened exactly as it happened in real life. So. Uh, the helicopter uh, scene and all no. it might have who knows um, yeah, I, I will say one of the things i do want to say before we move on is that you i wish this movie had had english subtitles for bill camp's parts of the film yeah but 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 that's part of why his performance is really good i think i agree he, you know the, there's a clear difference between the life he lives and that ruffalo lives apparently oh, the it real, works really well yeah the real farmer that he was based off of didn't speak very clearly either but with that we Speaking will, of another movie where you need subtitles for parts yeah. of it, I to go. <laughs> we will, a la Virginia Wolf, we will go to the lighthouse. Uh, Eli's number three. Oh man, I loved the lighthouse. Um, so the lighthouse is about these two guys, and they're in a lighthouse, and they got to spend a lot of time with each other. Um, it's Willem Dafoe. It is um, Robert Pattinson. Um, it is black and white, and uh, the what do they call it? Academy ratio, which looks almost square but it's not academy it's like no this is not academy ratio this is even crazier than academy ratio it's 19 by 16 ratio it's absolutely wild because i looked it up it, it was used in the 20s okay. this is like a ratio used in the 1920s it's very strange um which sounds like kind of pretentious like like what is this movie trying to be but i feel like it works um so well for what the movie is doing the the ratio makes it feel so claustrophobic which the majority of the, the movie takes place inside a lighthouse um or at least on this very small island with these two men are the only two characters, um, or at least the only two characters that speak. Um, 
and uh it's just i mean the the two performances are incredible there it's really funny there's a like an argument scene like halfway through the movie that made me laugh so hard but like you were saying scott you do kind of need subtitles so i'm excited to watch it again when i can watch it with subtitles to catch all the dialogue because i i feel like there's a lot there that i that was probably kind of flying over my head but i really had a fun time just kind of sitting in this in this world there certainly um, was a lot that was flying over my head in this film. yes um but and also uh, Willem Dafoe farts a lot. And that is really funny. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I just loved it because mainly because of the look of it. Um, I, I just like could not stop staring at the screen. I couldn't tear my eyes away. Um, but really just it, it, it kind of is getting into themes of like toxic masculinity and like even just like r- what happens with with this when two men are locked in a room together for is it months it's it's months i think um and they i think it's i think it's initially supposed to be like four weeks and then it yeah so a lot of the movie yeah yeah a a lot of the movies taking place during this storm where they're kind of they have to stay there much longer than they intended um but yeah I, i i just thought um it lined up with uh, very much the aesthetic that I'm into. I love the ocean. I've talked about this on our podcast probably way too much. I just love movies about the ocean <laughs> and it's just the, the costume design and everything and the lighting. Like it's just, it's just a beautiful movie um, made by uh, what's his name again? Robert Eggers. The, yeah. Yeah. So who made the witch a few years ago, that was like 2016 or something, um, yeah. which I'm really enjoying this wave of, of horror movies there's like three follow-up films to horror directors this year who like kind of are taking the genre in, in even more interesting directions than they did with their previous films with midsummer and the lighthouse and this is kind of i mean you could argue that it has horror elements but it's more of a kind of a psychological drama than anything and then obviously us which we'll get to later but um yeah i'm not the biggest like horror guy but i enjoy this type of thing very much and uh very much looking forward to rewatching this with subtitles. <laughs> yeah, Robert Eggers, you know, I, I didn't see The Witch, which I think you're right, I think came out in 2015. But I mean, the point mm-hmm. is, like, he clearly, you know, he had he made that movie. And this movie is so different. Like, this is shot yeah. in black and white. That It's that very, it's a very vertical aspect ratio where it's kind of, obviously, it's not completely rotated. But it's, again, very claustrophobic. A lot of the shots are you know, from the ground looking up. And so it feels, again, it kind of lends to that claustrophobic feel of what you're seeing. And because you can't see what's happening around the characters that you're looking at, like even, even if they are outside, right, it's still a very vertical shot. You can't see what's going on. And I, this was just one of those movies that to your point, right, it seems very artsy, it seems very pretentious. And I, I thought it was artsy and pretentious enough for me to look up kind of all these like production details of it. So like, they so Robert Eggers had an actual like this this lighthouse was like actually built by him. It was not a free. It was not an already standing lighthouse. Like he had the, his whole production set build the lighthouse that he wanted, and yeah, it's just like a very it was a very interesting production. I think that Robert Eggers is one of those filmmakers who I really appreciate exists. And I haven't seen The Witch, so I can't say it for both of his films. But like I'm not sure that I fully appreciated this movie. I think it was one of those films that when I left the theater, I felt like it was just, I did feel ultimately that it was just trying to be artsy for the sake of being artsy. And part of that was just because even though I did like where the movie ended, I think I I ultimately did like that message. So much of the movie feels like, Oh my my gosh, it feels almost incomprehensible. Like what's happening uh, on the screen to me, like for a large part of the movie, you just have no idea what's going on, but it does build this sense of dread. I mean, you talked about not being a horror movie, but there is a sense of dread that like something bad is going to happen uh, Mm -hmm. at this lighthouse. And, 
very bad things do happen. I think one of the things that I wish that it had explored a little bit more was this, like, was this sense of isolation and what that does to you. I think it does, tan- like, in a roundabout way with it, with different elements. It certainly does in some roundabout uh, way. But for me, I think I'd rather it have honed in on that theme rather than trying to scatter shot a bunch of a bunch of different themes related to like psychological deterioration and for me that's that's what it ultimately felt like it ended up being a little bit messy i mean there were some scenes just to talk about some positives i think there were some scenes that were like absolutely ridiculous in a good way i mean i talked about mm-hmm. uh i talked about that there is a masturbation scene in this movie already that's not one of them that's absolutely ridiculous but one of the ones that is absolutely ridiculous is that robert pattinson like just catches this bird in the film a bird that's been annoying him for a really long period of time and beats it against a brick wall for like an uncomfortably long amount of time on screen. And it was it's one of those times where you're just viscerally uncomfortable after a few seconds. That was his audition it. for Batman. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> honestly, I think his entire last five movies for A24 has been his audition for, for Batman. But I mean, just the culmination of just some really weird uh, scenes and interactions. It's one of those movies that requires, I think, you to watch it several times to really understand. Like, I'd be really shocked if anyone understood this movie the first time they watched it. Uh, just because so, so much is happening. You mentioned that it's hard to tell what's going on. I'm not convinced that there is that much going on. <laughs> the thing. Well, I think that might not be a good thing for this film. Then. I, I love that, though. Yeah. Yeah. Fair, I just fair enjoy watching how these men respond to their environment. But yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. You may be right. Maybe I'll watch it again and understand stuff that I completely missed. I, I think when I said that there was stuff flying over my head, I think it was individual bits of dialogue. Sure. Um, I don't know that there's a whole lot of plot to this movie at all, or, or I don't even know if he's trying to like convey any single coherent message about what, what this kind of environment does to you psychologically other than, I don't know. It's just a very interesting picture to me, but um, yeah, I'd certainly understand your point of view though. Yeah. And I, I think that's fair. I, I think that you, I think it certainly leaves you, maybe there, not, but there may not be a lot of plot. It maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't take multiple watches. Maybe there isn't that much mm-hmm. going on, but I think the end of the movie certainly, I mean, it makes you question what's real and what's not real in the film. Sure. And so I think that it would, I, I, I left the film thinking that it would help me to have to watch the movie again, to parse through how, I, what I actually feel about what is real and what isn't real. Like whose perspective is the one that we should trust. I mean, whether either their perspective is one that we should trust is maybe another question that you could ask. But again, another movie that like maybe incites a lot of conversation, but just feels a little bit empty. Yeah. Are mermaids real? I don't know. This movie doesn't give you a clear answer. That's true. Yeah. This is one I haven't seen yet. Don't know when I'm going to get to it just because it doesn't seem like my kind of movie, but I do Mm -hmm. like The Witch. I do think that what Robert Eggers is doing is interesting. Kind of. I can't imagine this movie is similar to The Witch, but I could be wrong. No, it's, but I just mean in terms of I admire the director's vision and, uh, like in the same way, Eli, as you mentioned, like Ari Aster is someone else who's doing kind of a similar mm-hmm. thing. Um, so maybe I'll get to it uh, somewhere down the line. Um, okay, back to Clint now. Um, bring wake up from his nap. Yeah. Uh, Dolomite is my name is your number three, the Craig Brewer movie. Yeah. Um, starring Eddie Murphy. Tell us about this one. Yeah. Um, Elisha saw this one uh, before I did, um, and he immediately texted me and said, I didn't love it, but this is entirely your movie. And he's right, clearly. <laughs> um, I Biopics, which I, this is a biopic, I guess, of sorts, um, you know, of creating a character, uh, more or less. Um, they can either fall into kind of two pitfalls of either vil- uh, vilifying or canonizing the hero. And this one definitely did like make Dolomite uh, the like unsung hero or the like he- 
he was a hero basically they they made him a saint by the end of it and it's like yeah that probably didn't really happen that way but um i think the reason that this movie worked for me so much is the undeniable charisma of eddie murphy um i am fully in the camp that i i think eddie murphy is one of the most talented entertainers out there um he's funny he can be serious he's musically gifted as well um and i if it wasn't him i don't think it would work um period point blank uh i just i love eddie murphy and if they make a a remake of the music man i want him to be harold hill (laughs) okay (laughs) it's a weird place to end i told you that before but it's on the same logic train work One of the most memorable lines from the year, I think, comes from comes from this film. Or I don't even know if it's fair to give this film that credit because he's I'm sure he says it in the original, you know, Dolomite film. But I can't say it because it's just not suitable. There's there's too many F words in the same. But (laughs) there's there's a lot that you can't say from this movie. It is. Yeah, well, yeah, it is a filthy movie, but in in the best way, I think it is absolutely hilarious. This is one of those movies that I found really charming. And I could not wholeheartedly agree more with you that this movie, there's just no way this movie can be made. In a, in a in a way that gets it to where it ends up if, without Eddie Murphy. I mean, Eddie Murphy is just so important uh, to this film, and it works so well. And I didn't immediately recognize Wesley Snipes as the yeah, guy either. who becomes the director of, of the movie that Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy's Dolomite, uh, Rudy Ray Moore is making. But I think he ends up having a hilarious role that is one. Of, and, and everything's just kind of played for laugh in this film. I don't think that this movie takes anything too seriously, which is probably for the best. It does try to take a more serious turn towards the end and. And this kind of overall message and theme that's sprinkled throughout, but really hones in on it at the end of, you know, do we, who, who gets to decide what should be made? Like what movie should be made? What should, what should be distributed? What should exist in the world? And I found it some right. being, there's no way this was intentional, but I found it being eerily similar and almost satirical of someone like, you know, a Martin Scorsese or a Francis Ford Coppola's comments about what is like, what should be considered cinema and what should be uh, revered in, in cinema, because this movie is very much saying that like, you know what? The legacy uh, old white men of Hollywood should not have should not be the gatekeepers of what if what should be shown to the public and what the public want and because they don't understand what the public wants they don't understand um, how how to necessarily reach every single audience uh, with with what has always been shown in theaters just because that's the way it's been and so I think that that there is a poignant theme at the end even if it is very loosely sprinkled throughout most of the movie and then overall it's just a really good time like i watched this on a train coming back from from portland maine and i just had a great time it, it was actually funny i was going to watch noel because it was around you know becoming christmas time which is the disney plus you know anna kendrick uh, bill Hader christmas movie and i literally stopped watching that movie after four minutes because and switched over to this and i uh, couldn't uh, couldn't think that that was a better move that i could have made because it was just such an enjoyable time eli your thoughts um yeah i like Clint said, when I watched it, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was a very funny movie, but um, I, I, the whole time I was thinking, I think Clint would love this movie, and I was very glad that he did. Um, yeah, I think it's Eddie Murphy's best performance. It's so good. Um, ever like like ever at all? Period. I, maybe I, I'm not the biggest like Eddie Murphy. Like you know, he's very good in Dream. I like Eddie too. Murphy. I just haven't seen that many Eddie Murphy movies of what I've seen for sure. I don't know. Trick two though, he's really good. In Trick. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen this one yet. Again, I'm being exposed here. I feel like with a lot of these streaming movies, but um, hope to get to it uh, at some point. I like Eddie Murphy. I think I I understand why people you know 
that think he's as talented like like Clint clearly does. Um, I, I get it, even if I haven't seen as many of his movies. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad to, or I, I'm looking forward to watching this just because I hear it is quite a comeback for him. So, all, all right. right, our final outlier uh, for this first section is Eli's number two, The Farewell. Uh, tell us about this one. Uh, I was shocked that this was an outlier. Um, yeah. I just, so this movie is, um, Lulu Wong, um, in starring Aquafina. Um, it's, uh, about, so this, um, uh, woman in living in America, uh, finds out that her mother, her grandmother is dying, um, at, back in China. And so, um, the family has decided they're not going to inform her that she is dying. They're going to instead plan this fake wedding where they are going to invite the whole family to be together one last time. And this is just something that they do in their culture. They This is typically how it's done if someone, an elderly person, is given news like this. So um, so she goes back to America to, or to China to be with her family. And um, it's a and it, without spoiling anything, uh, it's. It, it went it went some interesting places that i don't know that i was necessarily expecting i remember i think it was scott shelton your review where you said this movie deserves to be awarded for a plot twist of the year or something like that um yeah there 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 is sort of a plot twist in this movie that um i won't spoil obviously but um a lot of i've heard a lot of people saying like they didn't love the the twist um so to speak and twist is kind of not uh yeah that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of describing yeah no it, but, i i was joking when um, i said that yeah but. i i assumed you were but yeah. um but i i think i would argue and i wish i could say more than this but I, I would argue that the movie works because of that twist um i just love the way it um has so much to say about like cultural differences and like without being uh, it's very sensitive um to those to the culture that it's per portraying but it also doesn't take away for, with from how hard it is for aquafina's character in dealing with um the way her family does things um and so um, but it, it's very funny without ever feeling like it's mocking anyone um very sad at times but still still feels like it balances those tones really well um i think aquafina is fantastic in it um and i don't know i i just really love this movie and i remember just sitting in the theater as, as the credits started playing and just being like, i i think this is a perfect movie it just made me so so happy as someone who i love my family very much it portrays um the dynamic of a family <laughs> very well um and just um i you have all these like very minor side characters who sometimes don't speak at all but you kind of get a sense like they're not introduced in any traditional way where it's like all right here's the uncle like you kind of as the film goes on you you start to figure out the family dynamic um very slowly and i really like that about it too um but yeah i uh really enjoyed this movie yeah i mean i liked it a lot too i think it's just outside my top 20 actually um i think maybe the reason it's not higher is just I don't have a particularly close relationship with any of my grandparents. Mm -hmm. I only have one living grandparent, actually. So um, I, I've never had that that kind the kind of relationship that Billy and her and her Nene have in the movie. Um, and so I think that kept me just at a little bit of an emotional distance from what was going on, and maybe from you know connecting it as fully as I should have to what was going on in the movie. But with that being said, I still admire everything the movie does. I think what you're saying about how it looks at cultural differences is is on point. I think that's one of the things that really does hit home with me. I love Aquafina's performance. I thought she was a real breakthrough last year in a couple of movies and uh, mm -hmm. continued to do so this year with with this movie. And uh, yeah, I, I you know this is this is another winner for for A24 and makes me excited for what Lulu Wang does next. 
Yeah, I I mentioned briefly right at the beginning when I started talking about my number twenty through eleven that this I could not believe that this movie just missed out on on my top twenty. It did land at number twenty one. It was the first the first one out of my top twenty, and for a not dissimilar reason to Scott, I think it was one of those things where the emotional impact of the movie didn't land with me as much as I thought it would, and I really do stand by the fact that I think that that is because my expectation going in is that I'd be wrecked by this movie because yeah. of the, everything that I'd seen about the movie. I really thought that it was going to overwhelm me and I didn't get that. And I didn't get that from the film. And I think that expectations played a big part of that, which is unfortunate because I think this, this movie is fantastic. I mean, the bottom line, I think this, this is a standout movie for its ensemble cast when mo- you know most of these people are, you know, complete unknowns. I think there's probably like two or three people mm-hmm. who might be recognized in this movie uh, at most. Uh, obviously, Aquafina being kind of that lead role. I agree. This is kind of a in, in a twenty. If 2018 was a year of breakout supporting performances for Aquafina, this was her breakout lead performance, and sure. I think it was a really fantastic job. I will say, kind of unrelated to the movie, Lulu Wang and Barry Jenkins are like couple goals of the century. I think <laughs> the fact that like they are together and mm-hmm. uh, following Lulu Wang's like Twitter is one of the best things ever. So I would strongly recommend uh, doing that. She's a great follow on Twitter. But I I do I do like this movie. I'd be interested to see on a rewatch now that. You know, my expectations are not that I'm going to be emotionally overwhelmed by the movie, how it would affect me. I didn't get around to it. It's one of the many movies that I meant to rewatch before this that, unfortunately, I just didn't get to. And overall, I think that, you know, one of the most, I think one of the most disappointing facts about the reality of this movie, not, and this isn't, this doesn't have to do with the movie itself, really. I guess it's just the fact that it seems like this movie is just being overlooked uh, in, in the awards conversation. And even though it's my number 21, I do think it's worthy of, a lot more award, at least awards consideration than it seems to be getting. Maybe Aquafina gets an Oscar nomination for her lead performance. But the fact that Lulu Wang uh, isn't really getting too much conversation around uh, best director. I mean, she has, I mean, people are, are mentioning her and people, I think she is in some people's minds. So the fact that she's being left off most, if not all lists is kind of disappointing. And also Xiao Xu Zhen, who plays the grandmother. I think the fact that she's not Mm -hmm. being uh, really, appearing at all in the awards conversation for best supporting actress. I find that a little disappointing as well, because this movie is really, really good. And uh, this is, even though it's number 20 on my list is a movie that I'd recommend everyone sees. Um, I, and I cannot, before we move away from the farewell, sure. I cannot beg you strongly enough. I don't think we've posted the Twitter poll yet, but please vote for the farewell over Bernie, the dolphin too, in our nope. <laughs> Twitter. <poll. Nope. laughs> or family. How many times can I vote? Cause I'll go do here. that guys. Okay. I think it's cool. once. I think we're just doing a standard Twitter poll. So Bernie's back, guys. <laughs> well, I have multiple Twitter accounts, so I can uh, go in and vote multiple yes, times. Please do. For Bernie. I'll, I'll create some burners just to do it. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So those are our outliers. Those are the movies which only appear on one list. Uh, we now have a few movies that are consensus picks, uh, as well as our number ones, all of which were consensus picks as well. Um, so let's get into the movies that um were appeared on two lists we'll start with the movies that appeared on just two lists and then we'll get to those that appeared on three as a matter of fact no movie appeared on all four lists which i found mm. interesting but yeah scott uh, and i were talking about that briefly last night that it was amazing that no movie appeared on huh. all four lists so, but also guys good job exactly two hours for our outliers we really nailed the timing <laughs> on this so it's been it's been it's a marathon not a sprint but uh <clears throat> for our consensus picks uh let's start with a movie that i have at number 10 and that scott shelton has at number four he's going to tell us about it now uncut gems yeah uncut gems guys this is one of those films i, I i've mentioned a couple films i guess like really Honey Boy is the main example of, of a movie that really, the more I sit with, 
the the more I like. And and I can't think of a better example of this than Uncut Gems. I mean, I saw I saw this again early. This this is actually cool, and I will flex a little bit. They had a Boston premiere of this at the brand new ArcLight Center that opened up next to my building, and I got to go to that, which was a sold out theater that had Adam Sandler, Kevin Garnett, and the Safdie brothers at it doing a Q and A, and that was one of the coolest experiences I had in the theater in 2019 in terms of just getting to be in a sold out crowd. It ranks up there for me with, with Avengers Endgame, game, getting to see that on opening night with a full sold out crowd. And that is because the, I, I cannot more strongly believe this is like one of the best movies of the year. The more that I think about it, I gave it four and a half stars both times I see it, but the more I think about it, I, I, I would bump up that. I think I would bump it up to a five star review on Letterboxd. I gave it a 9.5 uh, last, just a couple days ago when we reviewed it for, for the podcast. And it's, you know, you talk about for Eddie Murphy for Dolomite is my name, giving kind of a resurgent career performance for him. And I, I think that is exactly what Adam Sandler is doing that doing as well. And I think it's even better than what Eddie Murphy was able to do in Dolomite is my name. The more that I think about this performance, the more I think that it deserves to be uh, where it is in the in the conversation for a best acting nomination for Adam Sandler, because it's phenomenal. And as much as Adam Sandler is like the on screen star of this film, the thing that stands out more than anything else is the kind of the fingerprints of the Safdie brothers all over this movie. Now I'm not familiar before this film. I wasn't familiar at all with the Safdie brothers. I haven't seen good time, which is the movie right before they made right before this, but I want to go check out their, their full filmography because what they are able to do here with the story that they create with the tension that they build on screen and the way that they capture your attention and hold it for the entire two hour and 15 minute runtime is something really, really special we talked about this just the other day, so I feel like I'm repeating myself a lot, but I, this is a different podcast, I guess. But the fact they, they are able to to build tension with overlapping, like within a scene with overlapping dialogue and across scenes with the story and narrative that they create better than almost any director uh, that I that I can think of off the top of my head, at least. And maybe, maybe there's another one out there, but what they were able to accomplish with Uncut Gems, which is a story about this jeweler and you know Adam Sandler plays Howard Ratner, who's this jeweler in New York City who basically lives a lives a life of you know increasingly uh, increasingly upping the stakes uh, both interpersonally and uh, pro- like professionally right so the fact that you know he has an estranged well currently still a wife but soon to se- soon to be separated wife like he has an estranged family he's you know deep in debt to some people but continues to make you know bet after bet to try to hit hit the biggest score he's ever hit of his life and this entire movie is totally built around the fact of you being invested in what happens to this guy who, even though he's completely despicable uh, in some ways, seems like a total train wreck uh, of a human being. You just can't take your eyes off of him. And it's one of the best performances of Adam Sandler's career. It's one of the best directed movies of 2019. I think that it's, you know, I, I just can't think of another director who could direct the movie the way the Safdie brothers directed this film. And for that reason, it's phenomenal. And it's the other movie along with Honey, along with, um, Sorry, it wasn't Honey Boy. I can't remember uh, the movie that I talked about earlier, which uh, has has the absolute perfect ending. Oh, Queen and Slim. Well, up there with Queen and Slim as the movie. Like, if the movie ended in any other way, it would not it would not have been as good as it was. It is the perfect ending of the film. And up there with largest gasps in the theater of the year was the finale of this film. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I would beg you to not learn anything else about this film and go see it blind and not knowing what the ending is, uh, because it will absolutely blow you away. Yeah, uh, this movie is so stress-inducing that a fight broke out next to Scott and I in the theater when we went to see it last week. Hey, um, literal physical wow. altercation. Tell the me about this. I don't think that it was 
it well so the movie was not the cause of it it was someone was kicking someone else's chair and this man did not react kindly to that um and no. tossed his soda at the people but um more than tossed aggressively chucked yeah what i will say is i think the general vibe of the movie probably raised uh, tensions higher than they would have otherwise been yeah. because this is such a frenetic frenetically paced like stress inducing film um but I don't mean that in a bad way, because like if you like thrill rides, if you like like nonstop roller coaster rides, this is a movie for you. Because, uh, like you said, Scott, this movie is just basically just a series of risks and choices that this Adam Sandler character Howard takes. Um, and look, I'm on record as saying I think this is the first good movie that Adam Sandler has ever made, um, and I, I probably stand by that. Um, but I, I say that because if you are someone like me who can't get past the fact that this is an Adam Sandler movie get past it because this is just a great movie and the movie relies on the magnetism that Sandler had that has that has allowed Sandler to have as long of a career as he has despite making a lot of not very good movies um he there's a, he still has that natural magnetism he still has like some movie star charisma there uh, and the movie at the end like you said Scott the Safdie brothers I think take really good advantage of that and they channel that into this wild story that yeah comes to uh a, a shocking, but ultimately I think fulfilling ending. And I also want to shout out the supporting cast. Cause I think yeah. Julia Fox, this is her first movie she's ever been in. And I think she's definitely Oscar worthy for a nomination, at least uh, for what she does here as, as Howard's mistress. Um, and then Kevin Garnett is great playing himself. Um, I was surprised at how much he committed to this movie and um, <laughs> the way that he kind of makes fun of himself and the uh, other athletes and how superstitious they are. Um, it's it's a really surprisingly good performance. Uh, and yeah, this go, go listen to our, our recent review of this if you want to hear more. But this is a great movie. And uh, I'm glad that I fit it in twice before the end of the year uh, in order to get it on my list, because I don't know that I, I would have if not for the praise it was getting because it did star Adam Sandler. Uh, but I'm glad it did. And that's why it's my number 10. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Kevin Garnett is is like surprisingly phenomenal in this film. And same goes for Julia Fox. I just like I was like Kevin Garnett in a movie. There's no way he's like going to be good. I mean, it probably helps that he's playing himself. But man, the guy has some really good scenes and, and really plays it well. I mean, it's, it is a relatively minor role. But he crushes it. And Lakeith Stanfield, another member of the sporting cast who I talk about uh, on our full review, who I think is, you know has done so many different things over the last, especially like two years, like a year and a half, two years, and real true up and coming star. And he plays, again, a compl an, an, another completely different role than anything else that he's done in this movie. I mean, his range is spectacular. So definitely check this out. Incredible sporting cast. Yeah. Have you, I guess you guys haven't seen this one yet. I've I not. have not gotten okay. a chance to. I think I just decided that I'm going to see it tonight, though. So. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I could I could not agree with you more. It's, it's one of the things where, like, this movie started, like, well, the first time I saw it, it started around my 8, 9, 10 spot. You know, I was like, man, I walked out of the theater. I'm like, I don't know if I ever want to see this movie again. It's, it's like, just such an it's such a overwhelming experience in some ways to kind of sit through in a good way. Again, like I said, in a good way for two hours mm -hmm. and 15 minutes. But it leaves you very exhausted and very on edge after you see the movie. And then I was like, a couple days went by, I'd recovered from it. I'm like, I want to see this movie again. Like, I want to see this film again. And I saw it again, bumped it up a couple of spots. And then just over the last few days thinking about more, I'm like, this is my number four. This is a great film. 
yeah, it's it's incredibly entertaining, despite as you know ca- causing some anxiety, as it will inevitably do. But um, speaking of of maybe some anxiety inducing movies, we'll go on to uh, the next pick, which is a purely nostalgia pick. Eli, you had it at number nine. Clint, you had it at number two, and that is Jordan Peele's Us. Clint, do you want to first tell us why you have it so high on your list? Yeah, because it's good, guys. It like is good. Um, Jordan Peele is just—he's a phenomenal director uh, and writer as well. Um, if you haven't read his screenplay for Get Out and Us, um, there, there, I, I, I haven't read a lot of screenplays, but I have read his, and I, there are moments in, on in movies where I'm like, how do they p- portray that in a script? And um, just reading his writing, it really just you know kind of shows his brilliance, I guess. And um, kind of, Scott Shelton, what you were saying earlier about Uncut Gems, the longer you sat with this movie and kind of let it marinate, the the better it got for you. And while I did only see this movie admittedly once, my wife went and saw it twice, uh, once with me and then another time with her friends. Um, it just, it, it was really good. It was just a, such a very, um, it was packed with a lot of subtext, which that, that can be off-putting to people. Uh, to me, it was like a puzzle, and I liked it. Elisha knows that I have weird theories about this movie, uh, but the longer that it sat with me, the the more I just kind of enjoyed it. I'm curious uh, what some of your weird theories are. Yeah, I don't even remember. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's not. I didn't. I'll admit, I didn't come up with these. These were like That's on fine. subreddits that I read, sure. and I'm like, yeah, I buy into this. But about how um, her son at the very end like he was actually one of the doppelgangers as well the whole time yeah and that the prior incident with a fire the year before that they were at the house was when they had yeah. done the switch initially which there, there's a lot i don't of- think that's that outlandish i i totally buy into that one too thank you because i told elisha and he was like no they didn't do yeah, that i don't i don't think so but maybe. <laughs> uh why do you love this movie though elisha it's great um i, I like i said i'm not a, a huge horror guy but i really like these movies that are like scary but not too scary you know because i'm easily scared um i i really appreciate jordan peele's voice as a filmmaker and um think is a very interesting follow-up to get out because get out has very clear messaging for the most part like you you see this movie and you're like you realize what he's trying to say um you can argue about some of the finer points but this is very much like um more more abstract in its themes i feel like um there's more room for discussion which i really appreciate i think that's something that i enjoy in movies but make me think but i'm not necessarily 100 percent what the filmmaker is trying to say um, but also i just think it's a really effective um thriller and uh i was just on my on the edge of my seat the whole time it's also weirdly funny in some in some places um the scene in the middle of the movie where they're in i think it's in their neighbor's house um mm-hmm. elizabeth moss and I, it's been too long since yeah yeah Um, oh they're their neighbors are so good and um uh and i the the performances i think in general are are really good i i also enjoy that it's full it's fun to see a movie where all of the main characters are are black and it's like not necessarily a movie about race necessarily (laughs) like i i just really enjoy that aspect of it too and i'm and seeing i'm looking forward to seeing more of that from jordan peele in the future like not that it's bad at all for a movie to explore those things but this movie is just like um it normalizes it yeah it's yeah it's it's just a family of 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 people that are going through this crazy (laughs) event I, i i was pretty shocked about um where the movie went in terms of like 
it, well, I won't spoil that. But there were some things that surprised me toward the end. But um, well, we already talked I about a pretty big spoiler. <laughs> yeah, that's true. that's true. Whoops. Well, yeah, I'll I'll just say this then. It's not the biggest spoiler. I, I was shocked about the global, <laughs> the globalness of the thing that is happening. Mm-hmm. Like the mm-hmm. last shot of the movie is so crazy. Uh, I just Hands appreciate how crazy there. it is. I think Get Out is a stronger movie, but these movies yeah. are really close in my mind. Like I just love them both a lot. I'm really excited to see what he does next. So. Yeah, I liked Us a lot, too, and I think I stand by what I said at the time, which is that I think Get Out does the social commentary better. I think Us probably does the horror elements better, the the like yeah. genre elements of the movie better. Like That was my one qualm with Get Out is that I thought as a horror movie, it wasn't quite as effective as I would have liked. It was more about the commentary that was really effective. And I think Us kind of gets it the other way around because I think the commentary is a little like, I don't know, a little convoluted for me. Like, yeah, we, we talked about how we had to go, I had to go read a bunch of reviews afterwards just to like feel like I fully understood what was going on. And yeah, maybe that speaks to the complexity of the ideas that Jordan Peele is working with. But I also think he should be making that, part of me also thinks he should be making those ideas more accessible. Like he should be, we, we shouldn't have, you shouldn't have to go read a bunch of reviews in order to figure out what the meaning of this film is. You should be able to, yeah to discern it from, from a close watch. Um, and I'm not sure I haven't had the chance to rewatch us yet. I'm not sure if the movie is as successful at doing that, but it's still really good. And yeah, it sh- shows that get out was not a one hit wonder that Jordan, Jordan Peele is here to stay. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm also in the camp of thinking that get out is, was a better film or at least one that I enjoyed more. I came to it really late. I didn't even see it in 2017 when it came out. I saw it, I think the next year kind of after, after all the award shows and stuff, but I really enjoyed it. I I thought that us was I I think what Scott is saying here really resonates with me. The fact that you know maybe in some in some ways maybe this movie was more entertaining in terms of its its genre, be, like being a horror movie. But uh, I think that the reason that I came to see us was not because I wanted a genre horror horror movie. I wanted a I did want a movie that explored themes at least. Not the same themes, of course, but in a similar way to the way those themes mm-hmm. were explored and get out and gave me a message that I felt like, yes, I could, I was, well, yes, was, was clear, but two, that I could still have conversations about. And I think that yeah. one of the, one of the things that I've struggled with since, uh, since seeing us is the fact that the, it, it kind of took, I guess, if, if what Scott was saying about get out is that it, the, the points were so clear that there wasn't too much to discuss other than just like have a conversation about the things that are happening in our society. Like the themes explored in us are like so convoluted that it's hard. It's also hard to discuss because it's, I think it's sometimes hard to find like a commonality or a thread to discuss. And, and like, it's hard to, I think, put together coherent narratives for like positions about what this movie is trying to say. And in that sense, I think this movie is a little bit messier then then get out and get out is such a high bar for me right it's like hard to compare you know this movie to a movie that was not like was nominated for i don't know like four or five academy awards and almost won jordan peele the director writer and uh whatever like the trio of of awards is but anyway um the best picture i guess would be the third one but anyway i think that the point is is that this movie 
I've actually had the opposite of experience of what you were describing, Clint, is that I think the more that I've sat with this movie, the less it's worked for me uh, for that reason around the conversations that I've not successfully had about this film. Like I, like Scott, kind of listened to some reviews and listened to some conversations about us. And I formed like some of my opinions on what certain elements of the movie mean. Like, you know, we, you mentioned the one about whether or not the son was already, a like was also a doppelganger throughout most of the film. And I've ultimately sided with, I think that that is the case. Um, but for me, like it's almost it's almost as if Jordan Peele has dropped these like conversation topics into the film without actually ever, you know, creating an answer to the film, which you don't have you don't have to answer those questions for your film to be good. But I'm not quite sure what it means for that point to be ambiguous. Like I think that there's plenty of reasons why someone would leave something ambiguous in the film to like create a point of discussion to make you think about something. But I'm just not quite sure what the point is of leaving of leaving that point and some other points ambiguous in the film. And and for that reason, uh, it did drop down my my list uh, over the course of the months as other films as other films came out, and it did land I think around 24 on my list. See the the thing about um, some of the deeper meanings of this, and mm-hmm. I I'm assuming that. Um, it, it's the same for this. This was a, um, a interview that I saw. I can't remember who did it with Jordan Peele about uh, Get Out. Um, you know that people created like college courses uh, dedicated around that movie just because of the impact that it had. And um, he said that he like dropped in and audited some of those courses. And people were asking him about all these you know subtextual moments and all this imagery. And he finally just kind of admitted that, like, no, I I didn't have any meaning behind this. It just it seemed weird. Overreading want, art. Yeah, I wanted to leave it kind of open ended for you to interpret whatever you wanted to. And for some people, that doesn't work for me that I'm not like a conspiracy type person, but I do like to kind of form weird opinions about movies specifically for me, mm-hmm. leaving it that open ended to kind of draw my own conclusions worked for me. Um, and I'm assuming that to that degree, just because of how the movies, these movies were made almost back to back and released back to back, you know, within a year of each other. Um, I'm assuming that he probably had a very similar mindset in creating uh, one to the other. Yeah, I think that's a fair assumption. Um, Okay, moving on now to Clinton Eyes number five. Um, We both have this in the same place. Clint, do you uh, have any preference for who who talks about it first? Detective Pikachu? (laughs) Uh, This would be The Irishman. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, You can can take the reins on that one, Scott. Sure. So, uh, yeah, this movie was amazing. Um, I... Was you know I, I was trying to be cynical going into this just because I you know don't agree with shall I say okay, the way th- the way that Martin Scorsese phrased his comments I think that's what I really had the problem with maybe not necessarily ultimately the substance of what he was saying and what he got to eventually after like five revisions but uh, his his original comments I wanted to be like oh yeah you know you think you're so big Martin Scorsese but you can't even make a good movie anymore too bad. This is a really good movie. Uh, if, if that's your mentality, you're going to be disappointed because this is, this is a great movie. And, um, despite being right, another Scorsese crime epic, I think it touches on some themes that he doesn't explore in movies like the departed or the Wolf of wall street or uh, casino or Goodfellas, any of these movies. Um, and, and that is aging and, um, and mortality. Like this movie really confronts mortality head on. I think that it's a movie about how, 
when the, when you get to the end of your life, how do you want to be remembered, right? Because everybody's going to mm-hmm. reach that point at the end of their life where they look back and and you know think back on on the choices that they've made in life. Um, and you know how, what what choices do you want to make? What choices do you you know want to wish you had made when you get to the end of your life? And I think it's a movie full of regret when you think about the Robert De Niro character of Frank Sheeran and um, that he he you know delves into this organized crime world with, you know, being the friend of Jimmy Hoffa so deeply that um, he, he loses sight of what is really important and his family. And, you know, much has been made of the one line of dialogue that Anna Paquin has um, and much should not be made of it because it is absolutely essential, I think, to what the movie is saying. And I mean, as for, for, for starters, like we're seeing the movie through Frank Sheeran's eyes and, that is how he saw his daughter. He didn't really see her as anything beyond just this sort of omnipresent figure who was there watching what he did. But it wasn't until he got to the end of his life that he realized, oh, I never really had a relationship with my daughter. And by that point, it's too late. Um, and there's that great scene where he is with his other daughter and he's uh, trying to say, you know, he, he says to her, I'm sorry. Like, and she just kind of like laughs, like, like, are you kidding me? Like, there's nothing you can do now. Like, we had to go through our childhoods without you. Um, and sorry just simply doesn't cut it. And and another powerful scene in the movie is when, of course, Robert De Niro calls Jimmy Hoffa's wife on the phone. He knows what has happened to Jimmy. Obviously, he's the one who's killed Jimmy. Um, but uh, she she doesn't know, obviously. And, and him trying to express any sort of emotion and connect with her on any sort of emotional level and just completely failing to do so, I think says all you know that needs to be said about that character. And it's also just an incredible piece of acting by De Niro. Um, I think that the first two hours of this movie is a really strong Scorsese crime movie. Isn't that it, crazy to say the first two hours yeah, of a movie? Right. But it's the last third of the movie that I think really elevates this to something special. And, and one of my favorite Scorsese's that I've seen, the, the shot that it ends on with De Niro alone in his hospital room, the door open, um, is one of the most haunting shots uh, in a film this year. And uh, I was surprised at how captivated I was for all three and a half hours uh, of this movie. And I was really glad that I got to go see it in theaters. Yeah. um, I couldn't agree more, Scott. Uh, And I'm not going to, you know, just kind of circle around what you said either and just, you know, uh, rehash everything that you said, because I couldn't have put it any better. It's, it's entirely true. The performances were great. Uh, The writing was very good as well. I enjoy mob movies uh, having some, personal family connections to those as well um i uh i did well we'll talk about that later but um (laughs) can't talk about that on here uh i did find it interesting it it was funny i talked with uh my dad about this movie and he's uh you know kind of offered some history to me about it you know they had the hoffa trial in nashville um that was later moved to chattanooga i don't i don't know if people knew that but it was like man kind of wish they would have shown chattanooga i don't I don't know where it happened, but that would have been cool. Um, but yeah, it was all around a really good movie. I personally think Pacino gave uh, the best performance in it. That's me. I, I think that he did. Uh, but yeah, all around a very good movie. Um, I think this is another movie that I would have benefited greatly from seeing in a theater. And I know that sounds crazy since it's three and a half hours, but I can sit through a three and a half hour movie in a theater. Well, I don't know that I've done that, but I, I feel like long movies don't affect me nearly as much in theaters it's very hard for me to watch something super long at home i think i got through this one in 
in two sittings, which <laughs> which is pretty good for me. I feel like, um, but <laughs> it it I, because of that, I think the um, the progression of like his age progression, the slow way the story builds, did not connect with me the way I think it did for a lot of people. Um, and weirdly, the 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 aging was kind of off putting for me. I I seems like it, it, that wasn't an issue for a lot of people but it really was hard for me to not think about the fact that robert de niro looked like an old man with a young face <laughs> in the early parts of the movie he had just the way he was carrying himself and um which there's not really anything you can do about that but uh, i i definitely respect what he's trying to do with this movie i think i don't think it would have worked if it was just multiple actors playing the same character and in different parts of his life i think it being de niro the whole time kind of it has to be that way um but yeah i i liked this movie a lot i just it wasn't one of my favorites of this year yeah this movie clocked in at number 19 for me and i think it is a really spectacular it is really spectacular film i mean it's in my top 20 in, in a year of you know we talked about how for me at least there was probably like 23 24 movies that i'd recommend everyone go see um or at least that to, that there that at sentiment at least and i think the irishman is one of them it's just such a long movie <laughs> i saw this in theaters I, I was lucky enough to see this in a theater here in boston and for me like it was it was a slog it was it was hard uh to to get through i think part of that is that the seats weren't super comfortable in the theater that i was in um that that honestly could be a part of it but i I just found that the first two and a half, almost like two hours, 45 minutes of this film are a movie that I've seen like so many times from Martin Scorsese. And that's not a bad thing because this, it is a really well done Martin Scorsese movie. And it really kicks into high gear and hits, hits the heights that it's that Scott, I think was alluding to and, and explicitly referring to with some of those final seeds scenes in the nursing home. And um, especially that final shot, I agree. Even the scene with his daughter, uh, where where they have that that conversation around how Anna Paquin's uh, character, the other daughter, isn't you know he can't repair that relationship now, and I just kind of wish that I got more uh, <laughs> in- engagement with that narrative the more it, it went along because it feels like you do again. This is not necessarily a bad thing because the movie is so well made, but it really feels like you have to sit through two and a half hours to get to the best part of the movie. And that happens sometimes. I mean, the Irishman's not alone in that. And maybe and maybe not the best part of the movie is even the right way to put it, but the most interesting, like the reason I came to see the Irishman, the reason I came to see something new and interesting from Martin Scorsese that was kind of promised. And I think in a lot of the conversation around this film, like you do have to wait, I think two and a half hours to really, to really sink your teeth into that component of the film. And part of that's necessary because you have to go through this lived experience with Frank Sheeran. You have to understand these characters that you're interacting with. And again, he doesn't confront this type of stuff until he is at that last part of his life. Sure. Sure. But I, I mean, I, yeah. it, all of that can be true and it also can still be difficult to sit through a movie for that long and have the experience of, of that I was, that I was kind of hoping for. I mean, again, we're talking about a movie that ended up number 19. This is a great film. I'd strongly recommend it. I just don't think that um, I like, I think Martin Scorsese needed an editor on this film. I was watching some, some joke awards, okay. joke awards lists. And somebody said like the, the you know, uh, you know, best or, or is it like a, I forget what exactly what it was, but it's basically the movie that I can sit th- or go, go take a shower in the middle of and come back in 20 minutes and not feel like I've missed anything. And I think that there are parts of this movie that do feel like that there. They really do like that. I don't, I don't know that there's constantly something happening where you feel like you've missed something if, if you blink or or go do something else and come back and, uh, in the earlier parts. And the last parts of the movie, again, I think every scene is critical and, and he's really bringing home all of these concepts and themes that he's talked about over the course of the, uh, you know, briefly explored over the course of the movie, tying them all together, putting them in the package that I think 
uh, we were I was kind of hoping for throughout the film. Eli, to your point about the de-aging, I think eventually I got used to it and, and it did work for me mm-hmm. at the end of the day. But some of those earlier scenes, I think they really are starting the, the youngest scenes with Robert De Niro, the one in particular that I can only explain as the, the reason why this movie is nominated for best stunt cast, best ensemble stunt cast at the Screen Actors Guild Awards is, is when Robert De Niro like curb stomps this guy outside of a deli. Uh, I, I, that was a, a really tough scene to watch and it looked like Robert De Niro was 90 years old in that scene even though yeah. he had the face of a 20 year old uh, not 20 year old but like 30 35 year old it's yeah. just that was really kind of the earlier parts of the movie and that scene in particular the ones that didn't work <laughs> for me with the de-aging perspective but then you know you have three more hours of a film that or the de-aging I don't think I don't think it looks that bad uh it, I it, it I eventually got used to it and Clint you're talking about how you thought Al Pacino gave the best of the three central performances uh, for me, Joe Pesci, I think something, you know, the fact that Martin Scorsese was able to get Joe Pesci to come out of retirement to play this role, it's such an understated and soft-spoken role uh, with the same authority and power that you'd expect from a Joe Pesci-like character. And for me, it felt like something different from Joe Pesci, something altogether um, really powerful in a different way that than I'd seen him do. Whereas the Al Pacino performance, although I, I would absolutely stand by what you're saying is it's a fantastic performance, one of the best of Al Pacino's career, it felt the same as a bunch of other performances that he'd given. And so for me, I personally give the edge to Joe Pesci, but you can't go wrong without any of these three performances. They're all fantastic. I think one reason maybe, and this as somebody that um, reviews movies or uh, even right has a letterbox account, um, I don't see a lot of movies. I'll just lay it out there. And I have not seen a lot of Al Pacino performances. So this was like almost seeing it with new eyes to me. Yeah. Um, it's so, definitely the most attention grabbing performance in the yeah. movie. Yeah. Sure. I'd, re- I'd recommend the, the Godfather. Um, never, mm, <laughs> never heard of it. Uh, yeah. It's that a small Disney indie Plus? film from the 70s. That's that, that's that pizza restaurant, right? In China, <laughs> yeah. Godfather, yeah. Right? Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. No. So that that is The Irishman. A, f- a few difficulties there for, for some people, but I think. Um, Still strongly yeah, it's recommend. It's a good it. movie. It's I a just, great movie. Yeah, I, try to get past. <laughs> try to get past the long running time because I think yeah. like this isn't pushing back against y'all because y'all have articulated substantive reasons for why you think the movie is too long. But I feel like there's too many people out there just saying, "Oh, this movie's too long." That's just kind of a lazy critique, not really knowing exactly what it is, uh, like what they would take out of the movie, or you know why they think the movie is too long. Just saying it's too long because everyone's going to be like, "Oh yeah, of course it is, three and a half hours." Oh yeah, and like I, yeah. I am the first person to criticize the movie for being long. I think eighty percent of movies are too long, but. Uh, I don't know. This movie did never felt like that for me. Maybe just because I went in knowing, hey, this is going to be the longest thing you've ever sat through in a theater. So just whenever you think, oh, it's almost over. No, you still have another hour left to go. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, moving on to the final movie, which is on two only two lists, and that is Marriage Story, the Noah Baumbach Netflix film. This is at Eli's number 10 and Scott Shelton's number two. Scott, do you want to tell us why this is your second best movie of the year? Yeah, no, Marriage Story is just, it's an amazing film. I haven't seen, I'll just get this out of the way first. Like, I haven't seen Kramer versus Kramer. Obviously, there's a lot of comparisons to that film uh, in terms of the kind of the most recent movie that tackles marriage in this way. I often think that this is like a, this is like misleading title of the year because this isn't about the story. This isn't a story about a marriage. It's the story about a marriage falling apart. It's the story about a divorce. But obviously, divorce story doesn't play very well on a title. So you have to call it something else. And that's marriage story. And, you know, we briefly already mentioned uh, Adam Driver earlier when we were talking. I think it was Eli's um, number in one of his number 23, number 11. He had 
uh, the Don Quixote movie, which stars Adam Driver in it. And this is another piece of work by Adam Driver. He had like four movies come out this year. Obviously, he had Rise of Skywalker. He also had The Report, which just missed out of my top 20. It was, I think, number 25. And he has Marriage Story, which is kind of the culmination of his here. It's absolutely fantastic. And he's opposite, uh, you know, his wife in the movie, soon to be ex-wife, ex-wife by the end of the film, who's played by Scarlett Johansson, who is equally incredible in this film. It's directed by Noah Baumbach. It's written by Noah Baumbach. It's semi, maybe like, a little bit autobiographical about his divorce from Jennifer Jason Lee. And I just found the best parts of this film were Adam driver, Scarlett Johansson. So the, some of the supporting cast I'm, I'm less hot on. I, I rewatched part of this movie yesterday uh, and I'm less hot on Alan Alda performance. I think it's really good, but I'm, I'd never, I don't buy into the whole supporting actor campaign that, that briefly happened for him. I think he's out of the conversation now for the most part. I mean, maybe he'll still pop up, but I was a little, I was a little, bit less enthused by his performance this time around. Uh, but Laura Dern is amazing uh, in her very over-the-top, in some ways, role here. I think she nails it perfectly. Just a, an amazing cast, and it's complemented so well by a script uh, by Noah Baumbach that is one of the best of the year. And I've, you know, Scott talked about this movie earlier and how difficult it is to watch the, some parts of it. And it has some of the most viscerally uncomfortable argument scenes that I think you can find uh, in any movie. There's a couple in particular that, man, they they just really make you kind of want to almost go into the fetal position a little bit and kind of hug yourself to retract from what you're seeing on screen. But for me, I, I when I say it's difficult to watch, I don't mean that it, you know, I, it isn't also enjoyable because I know, I mean, this is a, a dichotomy. I think we talked about it on the podcast, Scott, that it was that, that you found it difficult to watch in a way that wasn't necessarily enjoyable. Like it wasn't enjoyable for me uh, in some ways, similar to uncut gems. I found the hard parts of this movie to watch ultimately quite in, in, enjoyable. And, you know, the best scene in the movie, the kind of the climactic argument scene in the film in, in particular, one of those things where it's in some ways so viscerally um, uncomfortable to watch, but at the same time, you know, I feel like I can think of times where I've thought similar things in a heated argument. Uh, maybe, obviously, not not with a wife that I have, but uh, as I'm not married, but you know, with arguments with friends, arguments with other people. Like I, I can, I have felt those things that I'm seeing on screen, and I think it's just done so well uh, and and put together so well. I could talk about this movie for for hours, probably. I mean, that that's how much I do love this film. It, it does miss out being my number one for a period of the year. It was my number one. Uh, and then I rewatched what was my number one and and moved it up because some of the qualms that I had with that movie I didn't have on a rewatch and I actually thought it worked really well and put together. But Marriage Story is one of those films that it's on Netflix. I did get to see it in theaters. I was I felt really lucky to get to see it in theaters because I think it plays really well uh, on the big screen. I think the the visuals that Noah Baumbach goes for, although you know he's not going to get nominated for, I don't think he's going to get nominated for best director at this point. Uh, and I, don't, I certainly don't think the cinematography is going to be recognized, but I think the the camera shots that he that he's trying to accomplish with a lot of stills where the camera doesn't move, uh, but obviously characters in the shot move move around the scene. I think that that's done really well, and I don't I don't I can't think of another movie that has done that as well as this film does, and that's something that really resonated with me, and I think it kind of added to the scene because, in many ways, like this scene leaves you or these this movie leaves you frozen in place and i think that the cinematography helps with that it's also a really quiet movie in some ways there's the score is is pretty understated the music is used pretty conservatively and when it does 
for that reason, maybe it sticks out a little bit. And, and obviously, uh, the best scores are going to be the ones that complement and accentuate scenes that don't necessarily stand out in that way. Um, but I think it works like the the conservative use of the music works really well because it's a film that deserves to be quiet. It's a film that deserves for you to focus intently on what is being said and to not be affected by other aspects of the filmmaking process. And and for that reason, I really appreciated it. It's a movie I couldn't recommend more highly. Uh, it, it's a movie that even though I have not been married and have gone through a divorce, but it's a movie that I still felt like I connected with because the arguments and the interpersonal connections that were being that kind of were being wrestled through on screen still felt like something that I could relate to even without that. And uh, I was surprised by that. I was surprised by how much I connected with some of these characters, thoughts and feelings and beliefs and uh, just really phenomenal performances from some of those cast members that I talked about. Yeah. Eli, why was this on your list? Um, yeah, I can definitely relate to what you were saying about just i'm not married either but something about just the way it this movie portrays conflict um i could relate to um i think it does a really good job of realizing both of these characters in a way that you you don't find yourself completely siding with one or the other and and you like you understand um why these why they're divorcing but you also like really don't like you want them to be together, but you understand why they're not. And so, um, and it feels very real that they both really want the best of their, uh, for their child. Um, in my letterbox review, I think I said something about how this movie is, is about how it's impossible to be nice. Um, and that was really just uh, because I feel like there's a lot of the, there's a lot of like movies about being nice these days. And this is a movie where these, these two people are trying to go through this thing in a way that's not going to hurt their kid. They, they really do seem to care each about each other on some level um, and on a very deep level. Um, but the system of what they have to go through in order to be divorced is making it impossible for them to be civil. Um, and so it's really hard to watch those. The more severe argument scenes is because you, you get the, you really do think these people care about each other and you're like, it, it's just, it's so uncomfortable. Um, because it just feels so real. Um, but yeah, I loved it. I think it would, I recommended it to Clint and then I was immediately like, Oh wait, you like <laughs> got married somewhat recently. Like this would probably be really hard to watch for you. Uh, but it's, I think it's so good. And the performances, like you said, are great. Um, always here for a good Adam driver performance. Um, he's really showed up this year and this is, uh, this is one of his best, I think. Yeah, I, I really have him pegged as I think one of the one of the best current actors uh, yeah. doing doing stuff in Hollywood, and I think that this is this is one of the the main reasons behind that. And also, I didn't mention this, but like one of the best scenes of the year too is at you know towards the end of the film with Adam Driver, and not not the argument scene, but actually the scene in the bar in New York where he sings. Uh, absolutely spine, you know, just chilling scene, spine tingling yeah. scene. Um, cause I feel like it really feels like a culmination of the journey that this character, this, this one, you know, this half of the story, so to speak, uh, has been, uh, that person's been on and it was a beautiful scene. Yeah, no, I, I really liked the movie. I find it hard to critique, um, much about it other than there was one scene, which I wasn't a huge fan of, but, um, it just falls further down because like you said, it is hard to watch. And when I'm thinking about my favorite movies of the year, I'm thinking a lot about the movies that I want to rewatch again and again and again. Um, and I don't think that this is one of them. Um, so that that's why it's at number 17 or 16 for me, but it's still a, a great achievement for Noah Baumbach and everyone involved. Um, 
All right, we're now on to the movies that appear on three lists. And first up, we have the movie, which I think is in unit. We are in universal agreement that this is the seventh best <laughs> film of the year because it was number seven on Scott Shelton, Eli, and my list. And that is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'll just start by talking about it. Um, this is the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino, one of my favorite filmmakers on my Mount Rushmore of directors um, who are, you know, are my favorite directors. Um, so the question, though, really- is, is it his feet on Mount Rushmore or is it his face? Oh, <laughs> Gosh, don't, Whoa, don't maybe somebody's think um, yeah, Uma Thurman's maybe. Um, th- this is uh, this. I was really looking forward to this movie because it's. I look forward to every single Tarantino movie. Like they're an event, regardless of what the movie is about. It's a Tarantino film. You got to go see it. Um, and I think this is his my number three, my third favorite Tarantino film behind uh, Pulp Fiction and Inglorious Bastards. I think this is upper tier. Um, once uh, upper upper tier Tarantino and and much like the Irishman, this is very much a twilight film. Um, it, it feels like um, Tarantino confronting with the fact that he is older and that maybe he's at the end of his career. And he, you know he's he's reinvented history before, but he's never he's never done it with so much with the, with the sort of softness that he does in this movie and the uh, particularly the way that that uh, Margot Robbie Sharon Tate is portrayed. I I really. Uh, I thought it was kind of beautiful the way that he portrayed this this person who is known only because of her famous death, right? Because of her death at the hands of Charles Manson. And he portrays her as like this person who is just full of life and generous and open hearted um, and really just a good person and forces us to think about her in a way that no one has ever thought about her. Like we actually have to think about her as an actual living person that that had existed. Um, most people just think about her because of her death, right? And so I think that's that's a beautiful thing and a real tribute to the power of of movies, right? Which is something that obviously Tarantino relates to a lot. The, the how powerful movies can be and the fact that you know, spoiler alert, for two hours and forty minutes, um, he can bring. Sharon Tate back to life for us. Um, and yeah, may- maybe when we walk out of the theater, we know what reality is, but the movies aren't always for, you know, depicting reality. Sometimes they're an escape. And I think that's uh, that's what works really well about Sharon's arc in this movie. And that's not even the main thread of the movie, right? Because then you have the relationship between these two guys, Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth, played by uh, Leo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, who are you know, they're they're these aging an aging actor and his stunt man. Um, they're coming to terms with the fact that they <laughs> that they may not be uh, relevant anymore. Um, and trying trying to deal with those feelings while still trying to achieve professional success. And I think this is actually my favorite Leonardo DiCaprio performance. I know that's a big thing to say, but I am someone who is just like I don't I don't worship at his his throne like a lot of people do. But I, I have an altar over there for him. Yeah. So yeah, I thought that this was spectacular uh, by him and the vulnerability that he shows. There are not many movie stars I think that would take on a performance that is so vulnerable. Like that scene in the trailer, right where he's getting mad at himself after he he messes up the scene, is some of the best acting all year and some of the best acting that DiCaprio has done. So a lot of people are highlighting Brad Pitt's performance, which I think is great. But DiCaprio is the standout here for me. Uh, but yeah, this movie, I, I I love the sort of meandering first part of the movie. Like we we called it Tarantino's Linklater movie when we watched it, which is obviously something that uh, I relate to very hard. But um, I, I love that and the fact that it's 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 so much more low key than all of Tarantino's other efforts because right, like because this is them coming to terms with the fact that they may not be relevant and maybe Tarantino doing the same thing. But then in this final act, it really picks up and we dive into the Tarantino style that, 
you know, we've come to know and love just as in the movie, uh, Cliff and Rick are able to sort of turn back the clock and, you know, realize yeah, that, hey, we still got something left in the tank. Um, and so I think it, it absolutely works from a from a structural perspective. And I can't believe this movie is only number seven. I, I look back on it with great fondness and also one of the best theater experiences that I had this year, getting to go to the uh, the Alamo Draft House in Raleigh on mm. the opening night of this movie and eating the burger that they have there called the Royale with cheese um, as, as a tribute to to Quentin. Um, it, it was a great theater experience, particularly during that that final um, act. And it's a wonderful movie. I really enjoyed this movie as well. I saw this. Uh, I was in New York with my mom for just a, a trip that we had planned, and it was very spontaneous. I saw that it was playing in 70 millimeter. And so I dragged my mother to see this movie with me in 70 millimeter. And she actually surprisingly loved it, which made me very happy. Um, but, oh, man, I I agree with what you said about it being just a great theater experience. I think um, maybe with the exception of uh another movie that we're going to talk about in just a moment, I think, but um, some good ex- theater experiences this year, the last like 20 minutes of this movie, um, just the energy in the theater that I was in. Oh, it was, it was so fun. Just, um, and then, you know, this is a little bit different than a lot of Tarantino movies in a lot of ways there, there is some of that good old fashioned Tarantino violence, but it's not um, at the forefront as much as, as a lot of his movies. And um, I just really enjoy the, kind of slow pace of of the the first part of the movie um something that i i think like i mentioned with the irishman i think i would have enjoyed that more if i saw it in the theater if i had seen this movie at home i probably would have thought it was too long (laughs) i probably would have incorrectly thought it was too long as i incorrectly think the irishman is too long i will admit that i'm probably wrong (laughs) about that um but yeah i just really enjoyed um, being with these characters, these two really fun characters. Um, and then Sharon Tate is uh, Margot Robbie's performance as her is so good. Um, it's just a really, really fun movie. I'm not really sure I know what it all means. And I'm not sure that I really care that much. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if what it all means has a meaning, but like, yeah, I, I think that because that's just not, I just don't think that's the kind of movie that Quentin set out to make in, the, in, in this case. But I think that the journeys that you go on both, to, you know, with Rick and Cliff together, but also their separate journeys too. As you know, of course, you know the middle act of the film is is Cliff going off to the Spawn Ranch and um, awesome sequence, yeah, which is an awesome sequence. But also, you know, Rick going off and, and shooting this this TV pilot that he has. That you know, Scott, you alluded to one of the scenes from that, but also the sequence with Julia Butters. Or is it Julia or Julia? I can't Julia, remember. Yeah. Julia Butters, yeah. And I think that that's you know that's one of the best scenes of the year, best acting from everyone involved there, both Leonardo DiCaprio and Julia Butters. I think that's just a phenomenal scene. And Scott, I agree with this. But I cannot believe this is number seven on my list. Yeah, I just, mm-hmm. I, I can't fit it anywhere higher on this list for me personally, just in terms of, of what I think of all the movies above it. But man, I mean, you look at this last year. I mean, this could have been number two, number three. I mean, who knows? It could have, it would have been way up there last year uh, for me as well. Probably, probably number three or four, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. And that just speaks to the quality of the movies this year. I think, you know, Tar- I haven't seen all of Tarantino's catalog of, of films. I haven't seen you know all nine of his original movies. I've seen a good handful, but I agree. This is this is top tier Tarantino for, for me as well. And he what he's able to do here feels more accessible. And I think this is something 
that maybe Eli was alluding to here, like with the, the classic Tarantino violence. Scott, you even alluded to that kind of like the real Tarantino experience. I think that that only flashes in certain parts. I mean, it erupts when it comes, but mm-hmm. it you only get that in certain in certain <coughs> parts of the film. And I think that makes this one more accessible to people. I can't remember if this how successful this was relative to some of his other movies. Yeah, but I, I think, think it's most successful financially so far. Right. Yeah. So I think that, and that makes sense to me. I think that that is because yeah. the first two hours and 15 minutes of this movie are, I mean, I think any, I mean, anyone could watch it almost, right? Like, I mean, obviously not small children, but you know, <laughs> anyone of a mature age, I think can watch this and, and really enjoy the experience that they're getting. The performances are from Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio are both fantastic. This is another example of a performance where I was at first, I was like, you know, I'm not 100% sure. And I'm talking about Leonardo DiCaprio. That is, I'm like, I'm not 100% sure that this is like one of the better performances for him. But especially when I rewatched it, I, I saw this twice in theaters a couple weeks apart. And when I rewatched it, I was like, no, dude, this is this is a really good performance from, from Leo. I don't know if it's my favorite of his, but I think that, you know, within a film, I think that this is one of the movies that asks the most of him. It's not that his performances have previously been one note or anything like that, but I think it really requires a lot of Leo to hit the hit the different notes that his character needs to get to, that Rick needs to get to in this film for it, some of the best scenes and most important scenes to really work. Uh, Clint, I think I'd recommend this movie to you because it's another Al Pacino film. He is in this film, yeah, I believe. Yeah, uh, <laughs> for a couple of scenes, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's one yeah. of like Burt Reynolds' final performances as well, isn't it? No, Burt Reynolds is not. It's a. Uh, it's Luke Perry who has one of his. Oh, final performances yeah, in yeah, yeah, Luke Perry. Yeah. Unfortunately, Burt's been dead for a little bit, but uh, <laughs> no, uh, this movie is just. I mean, I, I really like this like this movie a lot, and couldn't recommend it highly. And as someone who does have a Leonardo DiCaprio altar, uh, I would recommend everyone go out and see it just for that reason alone. While we're recommending this movie to Clint, um, there's maybe the best denim jacket wearer of all time. Okay, so I know you'll appreciate that. Well. Booth. As, as a denim jacket wearer. <laughs> uh, I have to appreciate game recognized game. <laughs> yeah, it is good. good stuff. Um, okay, guys, we alluded to one theater experience, which may have been better than once upon a time in Hollywood. And that is our next movie, which is my number nine, Clint's number four, Scott Shelton's number three, Avengers Endgame. Scott, uh, tell us about the portals and everything else. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> Avengers Endgame, for those of you who haven't heard of it, uh, is the, 23rd or 22nd i've already forgotten it's a lot of films that you have to watch leading into it actually not that really i think there's like five movies you need to watch going into it if you haven't seen the whole mcu but it is the culmination of 11 years of filmmaking uh, in the mcu uh, kevin feige executive producing all those all those movies and it's the it, you know it's the culmination of you know the direct sequel to avengers infinity war from last year I couldn't even tell you who it stars because it would take 15 minutes to tell you all the names of the people in this movie uh, because everyone's in it. Everyone's here. Uh, And I think that this film, what it was able to do to tie a bow. Well, I mean, it isn't the last film in the infinity saga. Technically Spider-Man far from home is, but to tie a bow on what we'd seen in the MCU so far. I mean, this movie is, is the closest to perfect that I think that you could have expected. I mean, so much conversation, so much hype, you know, the fact that, you know, basically like the largest effort to simultaneously distribute a movie of all time, like the fact that every it, this movie released in every single country pretty much the same week. I think the fact that its opening was three hundred and sixty million dollars domestically, just completely blowing Infinity War out of the water, which is I think was the previous um, highest grossing. The fact that this did surpass Avatar, uh, it, t- it took a little bit, but it finally did surpass that two point. Seven seven eight billion number. I think that it was that Avatar 
was at before. I mean, this movie broke so many records and as much conversation has been had around, you know, rise of Skywalker and whether or not individuals think that that movie brought the Skywalker saga to a close. I mean, what made that conversation, I think, hurt and, and sear even more is that the same company, Disney, was able to bring together, you know, more movies, but fewer years saga in, in the MCU to a head with Avengers Endgame in a way that, I mean, Skywalker saga, the Rise of Skywalker could only dream of being as successful. Uh, and I think that this movie ties together uh, Iron Man, which is played by, of course, Robbie Robert Downey Jr., ties together his story really well. It, tie, you know, it, ties a, it puts a bow on Captain America, played by... Um, Chris Evans character so well it, it yeah it gives uh, an ending <laughs> at least temporarily to Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow's character in a way that uh, I hadn't expected it would do so well and just I don't know where to start talking about this movie because it was so good I mean Scott you talked about the portal sequence tell us about the portals I mean so many fantastic movie moments in 2019 so many great theatrical experience experiences in the theater in 2019 but nothing will compare to the spine tingling feeling of first when you know Captain America first catches the hammer in the, the first part of the fight with Thanos. Uh, but then again, again in the portal scene where you have everyone's come back. Like I'm I'm literally I'm talking about it right now and my spine's tingling. I mean, on your left from you need to go take a walk or you from okay? Doc, I mean, maybe honestly. <laughs> Uh, on your like the on your left scene, which is a very one of the few quiet moments of the film, uh, especially in the final act where you know everyone starts to come back. And then the fact that everyone's there and then, you know, Avengers assemble from Captain America, the charge from the port at the end of the portal scene. I mean, there's so many perfect shots in this film. I think my if I had to pick one shot for the entire year, it's Steve Rogers opposite Thanos and his entire army. The wide shot that they get of that with the sky in the background, the destroyed uh, Avengers base before, you know, before everyone comes back. Uh, I just think that this movie is as close to perfect as you ever could have hoped for for the culmination of 20, 23 films. And uh, if it's crazy to say that, uh, I mean, I really did think this was going to survive the year. My number one, but it got, it got, it did get displaced by two other movies. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I told Elisha this, um, that I rewatched it uh, right when Disney plus kind of came out. I was like, yeah, I'm going to watch in game. And it kind of dropped a little bit for me because this movie should be viewed in theaters. That is the most electric uh, theater-going experience I've ever had in my life. I went and saw it. Um, Scott, I went and saw it. You weren't in town, so we couldn't invite you, unfortunately. But it was with uh, Daniel, Jonathan, Andrew, and Aaron. Uh, we went and saw it on, on a Sunday matinee. And the theater was absolutely packed out. And that was the first time I can remember sitting in the theater and feeling nervous about what I was going to see. And not really knowing what was going to happen i could guess and sometimes a little bit i was right most part i was wrong um but it was it was just a very i'll use this word again an electric experience that i don't think that i'll be able to fill for a while um and then i rewatched it um last week on disney plus again another plug for them and it's good i like it uh, but I think that this movie gained a lot of points just by the the hype that was uh, anticipated and then delivered upon. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I think I appreciate this movie even more. I've seen it three times now uh, because after seeing The Rise of Skywalker, uh, seeing basically another attempt to 
close a long standing movie series or, or at least bring a particular story arc of a long standing movie series to a close and really bottling the the ending like like Rise of Skywalker did. I think I have an even greater appreciation for what the Russo brothers did not just with Avengers Endgame, but really with all of the MCU films that they directed, which I think are among the best in the MCU. Uh, for all the reasons you guys have said, this was such a satisfying experience. Coming from someone who has never been the biggest Marvel fan, I've really only gotten back on board, uh, like fully on board, fully like gung-ho about MCU since like Infinity War probably. Um, and this movie delivered everything I wanted. I was emotionally affected. I laughed um, and I can't, you know, I, I have to give all the credit to the Russo brothers again, because I think they should be in the conversation for best director legitimately for what they did here. Not just in like unifying the fan base and <laughs> um, bringing the the fan base, like everyone in the fan base that pretty much has goodwill towards this movie, which is amazing to think about when you think about what's just happened with the rise of Skywalker. Um, and I think, you know, this is something that Josh Larson said, but maybe because in Endgame, they're not afraid to let old characters move on. Um, maybe that's one reason why it succeeds more than the Rise of Skywalker. But um, I, you know, the fact that the Russo's were able to do that, but also just the way that they staged this movie, like that final battle sequence where you have everyone in play, like every character in the MCU, you know, Thanos and all of his army fighting, and yet you never like lose any sense of the stakes. You never like lose any character in the mix. Like you always know what is going on. And I think that speaks to the craft that the Russos have behind the camera. So can't praise this movie enough. It was the only only conclusion to a long running uh, movie franchise series that really delivered this year. Yeah, I, I mean, the the just briefly on the point you're talking about the Russo brothers. I mean, I talked about how the set like I don't know if anyone can direct a movie like Uncut Gems like the Safety Brothers can. I'm not sure that anyone can direct a movie like the like this kind of movie that the Russo brothers can. The, the way they're able to track large scale fights and give you individual moments while also continuing the narrative of the fight as a whole. Like I just don't know if I've ever seen any other directors do that. Granted, there aren't that many movies that are doing that scale of fights with the, that many characters, but. I mean, like, it's just done so well. It's it, it should be an impossible task to to keep track of everything that's going on in such a large-scale battle. And you've seen it in other, in other films before. Like, you get that in Infinity War with the Wakanda fight. I mean, you get that to some extent in Civil War. Not not to the same scale, but the the fight at the airport in Germany. Uh, Hall, I think it's the Halle Airport. Uh, I think that it's just a, it's a remarkable feat what they're able to do. And they keep upping the stakes in each of the movies that they direct about the larger fight that they can keep track of. It's just it's an incredible feat. This is the only movie that I had uh, been a part of where people stood up and cheered when things oh, happened. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I I wouldn't change. I mean, I saw this three times opening weekends. I saw it <laughs> Thursday night, Friday night, Sunday, which was a psycho move for sure. Um, but man, I'm so glad that I did because each time I think most people in the theater were seeing it for the first time. And mm -hmm. the fact that you got that electric atmosphere uh, that you were describing, Clint, I think that I, 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 this is very maybe foolish of me to say so early on, but I don't think there will be any movie that gets that kind of reaction from people on that scale to that extent like that ever again in my lifetime. Yeah, no, I, if I had to sum up the theater experience with one moment, it was I, I went to see this movie with uh, my friend Danny, who's been on the podcast before. And at the end of the movie, when the credits were rolling, we just looked at each other and just like hugged because of <laughs> everything that we felt like we just been through. And it was so satisfying. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a great experience. Eli, any reason why it didn't make your list? 
Well, yeah, explain to me how it didn't were, make your list, Eli. As you guys were speaking, I moved it to my 20. <laughs> I, I was like, this needs to be in my top 20. Um, so I, I moved Paddleton down, a movie I liked a lot. But I like this movie a lot. I, I'm not really interested in nitpicking any sure. details of it. Yeah. There were things that I don't think I loved as much as a lot of people. I love the first hour and I love the last hour. I think toward the... I, I've never been into like time travel <laughs> stuff but i think this movie probably does it better than i've ever seen any movie do it before but because of that i just feel like the the middle part even though there were definitely some some fun moments um just was felt like a, a little bit of um a sag in my investment of this movie whereas the the first hour i loved how like slowly it started and it really like mr x right at the beginning with um it's not a spoiler because it happens in the first like 10 minutes of the movie thor beheads thanos and it's like okay wow this movie is uh not Checks going where two I hours thought, 50 minutes yeah left. <laughs> um so i love like uh how like strangely like um quiet and depressing the first hour of the movie was um and uh and then the the end of the movie is i mean just perfect i think it wraps up most of the characters arcs perfectly um and yeah i like i liked it a lot i just think it was a good year for movies there's no i I don't have any beef with this movie sure yeah i talked about that time travel uh part two one of uh, maybe my favorite scene is that scene between tony and his dad when he uh goes back and and you know encounters his dad when he's trying to retrieve the tesseract I, I loved the way that that brought tony's art to a conclusion mm-hmm. um again talking about how satisfying the arcs are for the characters here in relation to how unsatisfying they are in star wars but um <laughs> we can move on from that for now uh we have one Wait, more one thing you 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 mentioned that yeah. this was my um the um my greatest um theater experience <laughs> of this year um teasing when I teased that earlier, I was actually referring to Dora and the Lost City of Gold. Oh, so. okay. Well, True. We yes. Yeah. It was even better Avengers, in my mouth. I mean. To me, this was more of a theme park than a movie. So, um, <laughs> Okay, so Boomer. Uh, can we drop him from the stream now? Um, sure. Okay. Uh, one more movie to talk. Oh, and there you go. Okay. <laughs> one more movie to talk about before we uh, get Whoa. to our number one picks. And that is a movie that was my number one pick for about half the year. And I really... You swore that would remain your number one for the whole year. I did, but I'm not a man of my man of my word, I guess. Uh, I like the Joker. In the final couple of weeks um, by another movie. But Midsommar, which is Ari Aster's sophomore effort following up from Hereditary, was an absolutely incredible theater going experience. Again, talking about incredible theater experiences. Got to see this at the Alamo also on the 4th of July went to this movie um, with a, a sold out theater. Um, and I don't, oh. I, I may have been the only one in the theater who liked the movie, but um, <laughs> I love it. must've been a theater full of film nerds. If it was sold out Maybe. on the 4th of July. Yeah, I guess so. But I love Midsommar. I think it is an incredible achievement for Astor. Um, first of all, from a technical perspective, this movie is just like overwhelming with how well it is crafted. Um, the cinematography by pa- Pavel Pogorzelski, um, the score, the production design, um, everything. Like it, literally, we talked about this, Scott, when we, I guess we never actually did a full review, but we, we've talked about this, how we could just like, go on and on about just the camera techniques that Astor uses in the movie, um, you know, portraying these characters while they're at the the convent um, with the, you know, this, the, the cult of, of Swedish people that where most of the movie takes place. Um, just the, the subtle things that Astor is doing with the camera convey so much about what the movie 
wants to convey. And I think that's what one of the things that really takes it to the next level beyond the technical aspect is I, I've said before that I think this is the perfect mesh of style and substance because I think it has style for all of those reasons, but it also has so much substance in the way that the central story looks at the relationship between these two characters of Christian and Danny played by uh, Jack Rayner and Florence Pugh. I should say too, that this is my number two of the year and also my number two favorite Florence Pugh movie of the year. But um, but uh, the, the relationship between the two of them, which really kind of is reflected on a lot of modern day relationships, I think. I, I think this is not a situation unique to just Christian and Danny that we see here and the sort of uh, subtle sort of gaslighting that Christian is doing throughout the movie. It's not like, outwardly abusive like behavior or anything like that but it is it's all these like it's this like accumulation of microaggressions to where you're like hey this guy is not a good guy um and yet despite that i think in the final part of the movie aster makes this really challenging right because because we have to like find a place of empathy for this character like as much as we don't like him as much as we think these people definitely should not be in a relationship together i think that what happens to christian down the stretch I think Astor really wants you to question how you feel about that. And and a lot of people have come away from this movie. They're just like, oh yeah, you know, girl power, whatever, blah, 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 uh, about the ending. And I think that that's oversimplifying things. I think you Whoosh. really have to, yeah. <laughs> I think you really have to look at, uh, you know, what happens in the end of this movie. And do we really think this is a satisfying conclusion? Um, and yeah, it's, it's a strange, entrancing, like thrilling experience. I had no idea what was going to happen next. I think Florence Pugh is incredible. Um, the range of emotions that is on display here, like the beginning of the movie, right? When she has the shocking discovery, the crying and the sobbing, the full bodied sobs that she has is like, I mean, that's not someone acting. That is like full bodied. Like that is someone really like giving their all into like crying. And then one of the brilliant things, like one of the most brilliant things about the movie is the way that Aster uses that sound of her crying, of her wailing, this like almost like otherworldly sound and evolves the way that we hear that sound over the course of the movie until in the end, in this incredible scene, it becomes this yeah. like cathartic moment for um Danny with everyone screaming with her. Um, best, scene, best scene in the movie. That scene is amazing. It's just, yeah, it's it's an incredible experience. Um, and again, Florence Pugh's performance is a thing of beauty. Probably the best Florence Pugh performance, if the second best Florence Pugh movie, although I think she's incredible in the first movie, in the number one movie too. But um, man, this, I can't, I can't, I've already seen, I've seen it three times. I've watched the director's cut. Yeah, I, I, this psycho watched this thing three times and watched the three hour version of the film. As disturbing as parts of it is, like, the the filmmaking like the craft on display here and you know what what this movie has to offer substantively just makes me keep going back to it and i wouldn't be surprised if i watch it again soon it's just um one, an example of a director who made a, a movie in hereditary that i liked a lot but i felt like was was mainly admirable for the potential that it showed and then in his second movie fully realizing all of that potential that he showed in hereditary um it's an amazing movie yeah, Scott, some of the things that you were talking about there with feeling like the, the so many aspects are very identifiable and relatable in the sense that they, in, in some ways, I think represent a lot, a lot of relationships that you see, at least where they start. <laughs> Obviously, some things that happen do not represent actual parts of relationships that you see, but where it starts is very relatable because it, it is this aspect of a, of a relationship that has clearly been devolving over time that circumstance might force it to be prolonged because it feels wrong to end it right the start of this movie is 
basically this isn't a spoiler because this literally happens again in the first five ten minutes and what scott's alluding to here at the beginning of the film when she's like full body sobbing is the fact that danny's sister uh is kind of commit will commit suicide and at the same time also kills their murder suicide yeah. murder yeah murders their parents at the same time uh by like pumping carbon monoxide uh into the into the house and uh killing them in their sleep and then committing suicide it's a very gruesome difficult to watch uh scene as the there's no dialogue uh, when it shows what happens, it's uh, you see the aftermath and it just pans through the house and it's a uh, very uncomfortable scene to watch like a lot, like a lot of this movie, a movie very uncomfortable to watch unflinching in how it portrays some of its violence, especially when you get to uh, the cult scenes later on and this mid midsummer festival takes place. And at the same time, maybe this movie ended, I think it ended up, is it like five or six on my list? I think it was uh, number five. And it's one of those movies that when I first watched it, it affected me. I, I, I can't separate the period, like the, the time in which I watched it to the movie uh, itself, because I watched this immediately after break. And I think I identified a lot of, uh, things that I was retrospectively seeing were bad or not necessarily, I wouldn't go as far to say it's toxic, but like were bad parts of my previous relationship that should have been identified sooner and should have been extricated uh, out of the, you know, out, out of that situation sooner. And so it's a movie that emotionally affected me in a way that no other movie in the last couple of years has. And for that reason, maybe stayed uh, so and it landed so high on my list and the filmmaking aspects that Scott's talking about. Absolutely amazing. And again, another one of my scenes and moments of the year is that moment uh, in this in the convent in Sweden when Danny is full body sobbing and she has this group of of Swedish women in the in the cult uh, around her, basically like full scale empathy into like to the utmost extent of like literally mimicking her facial emotions and her and her sounds uh, together with them and, and watching that evolve. And it's at first disconcerting and then altogether absorbing in a way that I can't really say any other scene this year has, has captured my attention in that way. For that reason, it, it's a, it, it, it is deservedly number five on my list. Um, so this was my number eight and this was a really interesting experience for me because I watched it with a friend of mine and we both walked out of the theater and my friend turned to me and was like, that was horrible. Like he, oh. he despised it. And I was like, Oh, I, I think I loved it. And like I had to <laughs> yeah. like go home and like think about it. I still have only seen it one time and I'm excited to rewatch it at some point. I'd really like to see the director's cut, but um the more I think about it, the more I love it, I think. I think and one other thing, if I could just uh comment on that, I think yeah. that a lot of people are having weird reactions to like laughing during the movie. And I think mm -hmm. that people think when they are laughing, it is because the movie is bad, but actually there oh, are yeah. places where the movie intentionally wants you to laugh. There are comedic moments in the movie. Very much so. And the, me and my friend were at several points of this movie laughing together. And it was so yeah. weird for me because I thought we were on the same page of like what this <laughs> movie was doing. And he walked out and was like, Oh, we have completely opposite opinions about this movie. Um, but yeah, I, I just think it's, I mean, first of all, it's just beautiful. I've never really seen a movie with the same, look that this movie has particularly when you get to uh the location where the majority of the movie happens um it's just so bright and a weird way where nothing really feels real it's very uh, warm in a, in a yeah. way you don't expect horror movies to be very much so um and it's uh i, I think florence Pugh's performance might be my favorite performance of the year i'm not sure um i would have to think about that more but i i do um put um little woman above this movie a little bit but i think her performance in this um is incredible 
uh yeah i loved this movie i have not watched hereditary yet because i'm easily scared like i said and it's a scary movie it seems like yeah now i really uh, i i'm gonna watch that i'm gonna get up the nerve to sit down and watch hereditary because i really love what ari aster did in this movie i'm excited to see what he does next yeah, because I hesitate to say that this film is a horror film the way that I've described right. it to people when I've been, you know, cautiously recommending it to them. Because I'm not sure this movie isn't for everyone. I don't think because there are some very unsettling moments in this film is that this film is just deeply it's a deeply disturbing movie. It's it's not it doesn't have any jump scares. You're not going to jump out of your seat or or be um, terrified in a traditional way that a horror movie will try to get under your skin and terrify you. But you will be deeply disturbed by what you see on screen. Uh, some very, very uncomfortable uh, thing things to visually look at uh, in the film. I I try to softly recommend people try to sit through the parts that are that are vi- like visually just very difficult to look at, um, and, and and watch this film because what it's doing and what it's saying is yeah, not for everyone, but for those who get it, I think you're you're really gonna like it. Um, okay, guys. It's been a long journey, but we have arrived at our number one choices of the year. We have three movies to talk about here. Uh, once again, for the second year in a row, uh, just as they did with eighth grade last year, uh, Clint and Eli have picked the same movie on brand. Um, for, for I purely- picked it first. just want to say that. <laughs> okay, He did. He did pick it first. Um, <laughs> but guys, why don't you tell us... Uh, Speak, please speak simultaneously um, about why uh, Knives Out is your favorite movie of the year. Ready? Are there donut holes? <laughs> yeah. We loved <laughs> it. It. Yeah. Uh, do you want to go first? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, this it was a fun movie. Like, if I'm continuing <laughs> my theme uh, that I've kind of run through from uh, beginning to end, it was very fun it was very gripping the whole way through um it's not your typical whodunit i guess um because nobody actually okay spoilers or i've already spoiled enough in this podcast but nobody actually killed somebody i guess is a way to put it um you, you know not in your typical way um but you know well, it's okay. so, uh, so there is somebody that gets killed but it's not like the person who you think right right yeah. exactly exactly um and you know it's very uh very similar to mousetrap in a lot of ways uh if you've ever either seen or read mousetrap mm-hmm. you know it's this kind of one set piece where different things kind of happen within that location and different people you learn their stories and kind of learn what they're about um it, it's very i I've, with these you know uh what did you call it early? like drawing room um murder mysteries they rarely ever leave that that main location and when they did with this one it was kind of like oh okay uh they're at a uh you could see like a a nissan dealership in the background or they're doing like the world dumbest car yeah the world lamest car chase uh which (laughs) i I don't know i thought it was funny uh but it, it was you know dramatic it was very funny daniel craig was surprisingly really good as uh he picked up the mantle that um, Kevin Spacey dropped with uh, very weird Southern accents, um, but it, it was really good. I liked it. I I agree that it's a very fun movie, um, and that is a big part of why I loved it. Um, I also just really love what it, Ryan Johnson seems to be trying to say with this movie, which yeah. um, there's a lot of, you know, you can call it political commentary, and it's not some of it's not exactly subtle, um, but it, it doesn't feel like too heavy handed. Um, in the sense that like I 
felt like he was beating me over the head with it. But I, uh, th this family, this very rich family that the movie is about is there's very conservative people and there's very liberal people. And they, <laughs> they have this one, there's this one particular scene that, that people have been talking a lot about. That's like where they, um, basically are are having a, a political debate that is just kind of a, a model of what the political discourse has looked like for the last couple of years in this country and i love that th there's people of all political beliefs on this in this family and they're all literally the worst there's one kid yeah. that's described as a literal nazi and he doesn't really do anything about the movie other than sarah's phone um which and i a lot of people are talking about how he doesn't have much to do in this movie but i think that is part of why i love him so much perfect <laughs> yeah. so funny to me the way he is just in the background has like i still don't know why lines. jane martell took that role but i agree that it, it <laughs> yeah, worked. i well. don't either i <laughs> but i loved it um and then i i just i think the ending is so satisfying um down to the final shot um i love that um you get the idea that I, I love what Daniel Craig says to Anna de Armas's character, who's she's fantastic in this movie, um, where he's like, I can't remember the exact line, but he's like, I have my ideas what I would do with the money. Um, and if you've seen that, you you know what the context of this this line is. But I have a, my ideas of what I would do, but I, I think you'd follow your heart. I, I don't know what she's going to end up doing by the end of this movie, but I love just where where it ends um, with her. The the tables have completely turned and this family is at her mercy entirely. Um, and the, just that final shot of her taking a sip of the mug with the wonderful Rolling Stones music in the background. I just love it so much. Um, I've been listening to that song on repeat, just imagining that final shot. I love the the shot where you're seeing all the family's faces as they all are looking up, up at her on the balcony. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just I think this movie is incredibly fun and has a lot of really interesting and good stuff to say. It's incredibly relevant to our time and history. And um, but without ever taking away from how fun of a movie it is. The color grading in this movie is fantastic as well. I do yeah. want to say that. Well, I was just going to say, I love the look of I heard a Ryan Johnson saying in an interview, he, he wanted the whole movie to just feel like cozy autumn time that's yeah. what he told his costume desire just just make it really cozy so like everyone's wearing these like sweaters and best sweaters uh, yeah. yeah it's yeah. a good sweater movie uh, yeah this movie shot not yeah. too not too far from actually where I, where i live it live about oh. 30 minutes outside of austin is, is where it shot and my biggest regret is not knowing that you know there was actually a day where they were shooting in boston for some reason i don't know what it was that i didn't uh go out of my way to to uh to find them because uh, especially since ryan johnson is the director of my favorite star wars movie so I, yeah, I love this film is one of those again, like I sit back, I look at my list. And I'm like, how is this, you know, number eight on my list? I mean, this movie is so fun. Uh, I think that all the performances are great. I think Don Johnson needs to stop taking like old white guy racist roles at this point, though. He really needs <laughs> yes. to stop doing that. It's not a good look for him at this at this time. But uh, between that and Watchmen and a couple of the movies that Django I've seen. Django Unchained. Yeah. Django, yeah, Django Unchained, things like that. He needs to rebrand, I think. Go back to Nash Bridges or something or Miami Vice or whatever he was on earlier mm -hmm. on. But I, yeah, I think that the cast it shows up as spectacular. And I can't help but keep, you know, because Rise of Skywalker takes up so much of uh, my mind in a bad way probably is that I just can't help but think about some of the comments that of the cast members uh, of the sequel trilogy and how happy they were that J.J. Abrams was coming back to direct Rise of Skywalker. And this has nothing to do with the bearing of the, Sky of the Rise of Skywalker movie, but the fact that, you know, implying that they really didn't enjoy 
working with Ryan Johnson and his direction and his thought for the film. And like, clearly you look at knives out and you look at the cast that he brings together. Like clearly any actor who's serious about acting in Hollywood wants to work with Ryan Johnson. And whether that's because of the atmosphere that he creates on set or, you know, I think that that's probably some part of it, but also the fact that he's just making really interesting movies. Like he's making movies with interesting characters that are saying interesting things that you just like have a lot of fun uh, living with. I felt the same way about Looper. I haven't seen brick and it actually just went off Netflix today. Unfortunately, I was hoping to watch it before it left Netflix, but, um, I just think that he's an incredible director. And I think that, you know, I saw this movie two times in theaters and I still want to, honestly, I want to see it again. It's still in theaters. I might go out and see it again sometime soon. But I think that what what he's doing with, with this film in terms of, you know, taking that Agatha Christie drawing room murder mystery whodunit type style and modernizing, he's really effectively modernizing that, bringing in some modern sensibilities, create, like he's not setting this film and, you know, like Murder on the Orient Express, which of course is, is an Agatha Christie book. Uh, but you know, he, he's he's bringing it into modern times, and he and he's elevating the genre a little bit. And I think the characters that he creates, although not in, it's not a perfect movie, but the characters that he creates, the story that he tells, the things that he touches on, uh, even if even if lightly, I think really work. And and by the time I watched this the second time, the few things that I didn't necessarily love about the movie, maybe I was lukewarm on. I ended up loving it. Like I actually didn't like the donut hole line. The first time I saw this film, I was just like, this just seems like overwrought. And yeah, I know. It's crazy. I didn't actually like it that much. I enjoyed it, but not as much as, as everyone else did. And then the second time, like I, I couldn't stop laughing the second time. So something about the second time just totally clicked and worked for me. Uh, I thought it was amazing. One of the best lines of the year. And I just can't say enough praise about Knives Out. And now, now we get to hand things over to, to Scott to, for him to explain why he hates this movie. Oh, yeah. I hated it so much that I had it at number 11. It was my first (laughs) movie out of my top 10, but I do love it. I have been reading Agatha Christie books since I was in middle school, so I have a a place in my heart for these types of stories. And I think what Johnson does here so successfully, what he also did with The Last Jedi is take a genre movie and say, look, I love this type of movie. I love a Star Wars movie. I love whodunits. But we can love something. We can create a great whodunit. We can create a um, great Star Wars movie, but still critique things about the series. Uh, we don't have to like just un- uh, unconditionally love every single thing about the things that we love. And so he's able to make a movie that is a great whodunit, that is a great ode to those old whodunits. But he's also revising ideas that may maybe maybe have not aged well. Like so. So one thing I love is that the detective, right, Benoit Blanc. He's not very. He's not a very good detective. Um, and yes, he ultimately solves the mystery. But it's kind of. It's almost like he's looking back at at Hercule Poirot and some of the other detectives. You know, who who are always portrayed as such eccentric characters. They have such these weird ticks and eccentricities. But it's okay because they solve the mystery. And he's kind of looking at it and saying. Well, what if there was a guy who was a detective and he had all these ticks, but also he wasn't very good at solving mysteries. And I think it just creates a, a, some great comedy there. But then also, Eli, as you said, looking at the classism that maybe is in, inherent in a lot of these stories and the fact that a lot of Agatha Christie novels, the characters are rich, old white people um, and kind of, you know, revising that to reflect um you know, the, 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 the greater stakes, right. When, when a crime like this happens to someone who is not a rich old white person, like someone like Marta, um, 
the implications that are so much greater for her than they are for anyone else in the movie. Like for, for the other characters, it's like, oh, we may not get our inheritance. For Marta, it's like, I could be forced to leave this country. Um, and so I well, think- Well, she wouldn't, but her, but her mom would. Right, her family, yeah. Um, but by revising these ideas, um, he doesn't like undercut whodunits. He's not crit criticizing whodunits. He's just saying, hey, look, there are some things we need to revisit. And once we do that, we can still make a great whodunit. Same thing he did with The Last Jedi. And yeah, it's a wonderful film. And I, I think I want to go back to what you said about him not being a very good detective. I think that's true. But I think the reason in this movie that he is successful as a detective is because he is a nice person and he yeah. sees the character of Marta as a human being. And that is the reason that she ultimately, spoiler alert, wins <laughs> in some yeah. sense in this movie because she's a kind person and he he's the only one who sees her as a as as a human being recognize her her full humanity like the other members of this family are kind to the kind to her when it's convenient to them yeah um, her family's from paraguay <laughs> yeah or country, ecuador or peru, peru. Yep. um yeah, no, I think you're I think you're dead on with that and what Johnson is going for here. It's it's a great movie that everyone should see, whether, regardless of whether you're a Last Jedi troll or not. Um, all right, uh, Scott, your number one movie, also my number four of the year. It's our token foreign film of the year. Yeah, uh, Parasite. Yeah, well, I have. Yeah, I, I was really hoping that I'd have another. I'd be able to not tokenize foreign films this year, but Pain and Glory did just miss out on my top twenty. And since Portrait of a Lady on Fire did not get a wide enough release for us to actually see it, uh, this is this is the token foreign film for the year. It's it's Parasite. It's my number one. This is the movie I was talking about earlier when I was talking about Marriage Story. That uh, the second time I watched this, and, and I was lucky enough to to see this movie twice in theaters. Uh, but the second time I watched this film is when I just really sat back and I was like, yep, this, this is a masterpiece. This is it. This is the masterpiece uh, period of the year. And that's because what Bong Joon-ho is able to realize on screen is just everything the Joker wanted to be is I think the way that I described it. In my initial letterbox review is that whatever Todd Phillips was trying to make with the Joker, uh, Bong Joon-ho did it for him. Uh, and so it was really disappointing that Joker made a billion dollars in this movie made a lot of money still for, for an independent foreign film. Uh, released by Neon here in the U.S., but still uh, spectacular. I think that the story that that Bong tells with him and his screenwriting partners, the the acting performances from I mean I, I from just completely unknowns at least in, in, for the U, for a U.S. audience, right? Like uh, again, maybe these actors and actresses are, are better known in in South Korea, but from the U.S. perspective, I've never heard of any of these actors and actresses before, and I think they all give spectacular performances. I'm just so impressed. I think they were able to do. And I'm just so impressed with the production design as well. I mean, we talked about the lighthouse earlier, how Robert Eggers um, got them to build his own lighthouse. I mean, Bong Joon-ho built his own estate, basically, for this film. The fact that he had the, the park house completely constructed exactly uh, the way that he wanted it and, and the story and, and atmosphere and setting that he was able to create. I mean, it's it's an iconic one, it, and it's iconic in its own way. It's very different. It's not you don't immediately see this movie and be like, oh, this is iconic. This is an iconic setting. But for me, it really turned out that way at the end of this year. And and I think that the highlight of bringing everything together about the story of this poor family who's living in a sub basement, basically, uh, in you know the slums of South Korea. Uh, I, I don't know if it's Seoul, but I assume that it's Seoul. Um, and then juxtaposed next to this incredibly wealthy park family and their, their uh, mansion, even their yard, uh, the lush green yard that they have compared to the streets outside the sub basement where, you know, th this drunk man urinates every night, almost onto their, 
onto their home. I think that the imagery that it creates is is striking in, in a really positive way and uh, is a critique on class that is that is, if not subtle, incredibly nuanced in a way that it really feels like movies that are trying to ha create social commentaries about uh, socioeconomic classes try to make it and just fall short of, I think, every single time. And, and it is this, you know, the first half of this movie is kind of what's advertised to you. It's this uh, lower class Korean family trying to uh, insinuate themselves into the lives and the household uh, and the wealth of the Park family, this rich Park family uh, by, you know, the son and daughter of of the family becoming the tutors of the son and daughter of the park family to you know the father becoming the driver of the other father and then kind of the mom becoming uh the maid or i don't know how you basically the the nanny or the live-in uh person for for the wife and the whole family as a whole and that's the first half of the movie and then what happens in the second half of the movie if you if you don't know and you haven't seen the film don't find out what happens in the second half of this film. You know, like Uncut Gems, I think this movie is best approached cold, not knowing what happens when Act Two kind of starts. Because you know, I'm I'm watching this film for the first time, and and you know, we're an hour into the film, and what I thought the film was about had was over. Like that that was the extent of the film, and then all of a sudden, the film takes a completely different turn. And what happens is like the really nuanced commentary about social uh, about social classes. And the turn that it takes there, I mean, I couldn't have imagined that movie taking that turn. And I couldn't have imagined a better job taking that turn, executing on that turn, and delivering a conclusion and a finale that at first I felt like was drawn out too much. I really felt like the climax of the movie happens, and there's still like five or ten minutes of the movie left after that happens. And I really felt the first time I watched it that the movie should have ended sooner. It should have just cut it, cut it off and 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 roll the credits and let you sit with that. But on a second watch is when it, that, you know, the, the real ending of the movie happens, the last five or 10 minutes take place. And I'm like, no, that, that is actually, that really works. That's the perfect ending for this film. And it, it's a masterpiece. I couldn't recommend it more highly. Uh, it is a, it is a movie that I think uh, in its own subtle ways will really mess with you. That second half of the film can get pretty demented and pretty hard to watch at times. But for me, it was always enjoyable. And one of the best, choreographed scenes from the movie is the Ramdan scene that is just beautifully uh, constructed utter chaos on screen but it felt it feels like controlled chaos the entire time and I absolutely love this movie yeah Parasite is amazing uh, it is another movie that is almost undefinable like genre wise like it is sort of like a it's part comedy part thriller part like social issue movie but it's really not any of those things yeah. it, it's Black its comedy thing. satire it's its own. It's a Bong Joon Ho movie, and um, another that, Bong hit. As someone, on it is another Bong hit. It, it's it yeah. is uh, it, it, that is I think is one of the greatest bits of praise you can give a director, right? Is to say that you know this movie is uniquely their own. Um, but yeah, this this movie I remember watching it for the first time. I never got a chance to see it in theaters, unfortunately. But when I watched it online for the first time, I watched because like Eli, I like to watch things in sitting. So I watched like the first hour. And I remember messaging Scott and being like, oh, my gosh, this movie is incredible. Like, because the first hour is just so much fun watching these people, you know, ingratiate themselves to the Kim fam or the Park family and working their way into the family. And then literally then I, did I know what was going to come in the second half of the movie, um, because I think it does keep you guessing throughout the movie. And kind of like we talked about with Knives Out, I think people on all sides of the political spectrum are going to have something to think about here, because all character like 
whether it's the rich family or the poor family or this other family, no character is portrayed as the hero here. Like every everyone uh, has their good moments and everyone has their bad moments. Too. Every, every character is morally complex, which is just like real life. Um, and so I, I admire that a lot about um, what Bong does with the movie. And yeah, it's just so entertaining to watch a movie where you legitimately do not know what is going to happen next. Um, and I think that's Parasite. And like you said, the ensemble cast is amazing. Song Kang-ho, who plays the the father, he's he's kind of Bong's uh, right-hand man, has been in a lot of films with him. Um, I think he's great. I think just going down the list, um, the, the actress who plays the housekeeper is is goes in crazy directions with her performance that you're not expecting. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's just a singular experience that I think... Um, more so, like last year, we talked about Roma, right? Like with right with a foreign film as like this is an amazing film. Even if you don't like foreign films, everyone should watch this. Blah 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 blah. And I think that that was true, right? But even still, I think it was easy to find the movie slow, maybe um, just because of you know the way that that movie is. It doesn't rely a lot on dialogue stuff like that. Um, that's not the case with Parasite, right? Like this could have easily been like a Jordan Peele movie. Like, and if this was. Um, made by an American director with an American cast, it would have been like a huge box office hit, I think. Um, and I pray that someday there is not an American remake of this, but um, nevertheless, like I, when I say like, get past the, the, the fact that it's a foreign film and watch this movie because you will enjoy it. Like I fully mean it. Like this is a entertaining and enjoyable film by any standards, mainstream, art house, whatever, you know, level you're coming to this movie on. Uh, and so please check out Parasite. It's amazing. Yeah. And I will say, I don't know if I agree that everyone will enjoy this film, but man, you will be left thinking something about this film. Yeah. You can admire it. Yeah. This was my number 12 and for no other reason than I liked a lot of movies this year. This movie is great and I have nothing bad to say about it. Very good. Clint, uh -huh. go watch it. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't see it, guys. Uh, it's okay. But I, I mean, Dora. Not, I, I did see Dora. So. <laughs> okay, now that day, get out. <laughs> um, all right, final movie, guys. We saved the best for last, uh, yeah. at least in my opinion. Um, my number one movie of the year, Little Women, uh, directed by Greta Gerwig. Um, I, I kind of think that Gerwig does something similar to what, what I was just talking about with Ryan Johnson here in that mm -hmm. she takes a story that has been adapted many times. Like this specific story has actually, you know, gone through many adaptations um, and she's able to bring something new to it in a way that still feels authentically like little women all the way through. Like she's, she's changing little women as we know it but she's maybe even like amplifying the little womenness of it um, by peeling back the layers, having this sort of meta narrative going on about the conditions in which Alcott was writing the novel and looking at the character of Joe Marsh specifically and like just really, you know, give it, making an ode to, to Alcott and this character that she created and the fact that you know, there's this ambiguous ending. If you haven't seen the movie, you know, spoilers, but there's this ambiguous ending and it's kind of like whatever path she chooses, right? It doesn't matter because this character, um, like, you know, like I said, it's ambiguous there. She could do one thing. She may have done another thing, but whichever path she chooses, uh, it doesn't matter because the character that uh, Alcott has created is such a strong character and knows exactly what she wants that either way, it's satisfying. Like, like either way, it is true to who Joe March is and these ideas about, um, 
you know, that what what Amy Marsh says, like, lo, lo, we have a choice in who we love. It's not just something that happened to us. And the sort of tension that's going on between Joe, uh, within Joe, uh, throughout the movie of, I want to be a successful writer, but I also want to have companionship. And that's something that women aren't allowed to do. Women aren't allowed to have both of those things in the society that she was living in. Um, and so the, the tension uh, between those things is what really drives Joe's arc. And that ending, right, says that, look, that, that's what's so cathartic, I think, about the ending is that she is allowed to have both things. And it's great, right? Like maybe, maybe the movie has its cake and eats it too, but women weren't allowed to do that in these stories typically. So I think that's what makes the ending work so well. But anyway, uh, from a broader perspective, the performances are incredible. I think Saoirse Ronan, there may not be a better actor, period, right now. Um, I think every single role she plays is something transformative, and this is no exception. As much as I love Winona Ryder in the 94 version of this movie, I think uh, this is it's a different type of Joe March, and it's an equally successful one. Um, I think she's such a commanding screen presence. Florence Pugh, as I mentioned, um, takes a like makes Amy a legitimate character in a way that she has never been in Little Women before. And that's just one of the things that Gerwig does so well is that we feel like we know all of these characters so much better than uh, we have before in other adaptations and stuff like that. Like not just Amy who gets this whole arc, who gets to go through an entire romance with Laurie that we never really see in any of the other adaptations. Yes, she ends up with Laurie, but we never get to see what led up to it, which obviously tells a lot about her character. But Meg too, the Emma Watson character, I think gets this whole arc about uh, struggling with money, right? And that she is the one who chooses what some might see as the the storybook ending and she marries the guy that she loves and you know becomes the the how, the wife to him uh, that that people at the time that little women was written may have seen as the ideal ending but Gerwig kind of says look there are there are downsides to this life as well you you have to deal with um, financial hardships because the the woman Meg can't really work. She's supposed to take stay home and take care of the children. So she can't be out there earning money as well. It all has to depend on the husband's income. But yeah, these are just many of the themes and ideas that I love. This is like, this is a timeless story. It's a story that I've, I've loved for a while. Um, and so I was skeptical about whether Gerwig could do anything new with it, but I'm never going to be skeptical about Greta Gerwig again, because um, she has made the 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 best adaptation of Little Women, the uh, one that should endure for generations um, going forward, and I don't think anyone should ever try again because they're not going to beat this. I love this movie as well. Um, I really think that I so I had never seen a single adaptation of Little Women. I'd never read the book. I did not know the story at all, um, and it was shocking to me. Um, like <laughs> to every like the ending of this movie was a shock to me, which I, I know it probably wasn't a lot to a lot of people. And I really liked um, the way each of these characters was written. Um, you you can't like certainly you could come away with this movie thinking like, oh, um, Greta Gerwig doesn't think that women should ever get married. But like that's certainly not the case here because there's <laughs> Emma Watson's arc and, and Florence Pugh's arc. Um, just the way those characters, I, I really like the way she fully makes each character's motivations, um, completely reasonable and, and the way their paths end up. I don't know how accurate to the book it is. I, I assume the, at least the major points of this, the story are pretty much the same, right? Um, well, I mean, yeah. So like in the book, obviously <laughs> she, she marries Professor yeah. Bear and that's the end of it. There's not, okay, the yeah. whole, so that's the, that's yeah. the major difference is the. Yeah 
her kind of leaving a little bit ambiguous, which um, I think is really well done. Um, and I, I just love the character of Amy. Um, mm-hmm. I've already spoken very highly of Florence Pugh. I think she's great, but I just, it would be very easy to write that character as kind of the dislikable of, of the siblings. Um, she burns her sister's book at the very or early in the movie and uh, ends up being the one to, to marry um, T- Timothy Chalamet when it, it seems like the movie is, like I fully bought into it. I was like, Oh yeah, Sir Ronan's going to end up with Timothy Chalamet at the end of this movie. Um, and so, um, I don't know. I just, I really love this movie. Saw it with my family on Christmas day. Um, if you haven't seen this, um, go see it with your family. It's, it's a good, like just happy, warm movie, fun time at the movies. Clint, uh, said that (laughs) can i say what you said or do you want to say it about ford versus ferrari you said oh yeah uh ford versus ferrari is a movie you take your dad to this is a movie you take your mother to for sure and i did i did Uh, and scott did and Uh, it was really funny uh i was texting scott right after this movie um kind of the procession of people that we were watching coming into the movie and i loved it like don't get me wrong this might sound like a criticism but it's not um chandler and i got there fairly early just because we like to get there early. We have nothing else to do. It's Cleveland. Um, and it was like a middle-aged mother would walk in and then her kind of artsy daughter wearing a hat would walk in right behind yeah. her. And that happened over and over again. And uh, a second thing that, um, or a few more things that I uh, texted Scott about, um, two of them kind of funny and related to the quality of the movie. There was an older lady behind me that um, I could hear. They, they talked incessantly through the movies. Um, and she said, I'm talking to her friend and I'm going to look up and see who played Joe. And she pulled up what I assume to be IMDB. And she's like, somebody named psoriasis Ronan. (laughs) I I don't know who that is. Um, and then I I did laugh out loud when Bob Odenkirk walked on screen. It was like, I I was like, what? Okay. Interesting casting choice. I'm putting that for plot twist of the year. I did not know he was in this movie. But I yeah. watched I watched this movie with my mom as well, just to round out the uh Yay. before some of us was taking our mothers to it. So Yay. uh yeah. Eli, you talked about how people are saying, you know, that Greta Gerwig is saying that women shouldn't marry at all. I, I don't even I, think that's true. I haven't heard that. Okay. I, I, I was gonna say I haven't saying. heard that either. I don't think yeah. well, if anyone is saying that, I don't even think that's true for Joe's arc, like I was saying, because no. I think the point is that ultimately, like I was saying, she if she chooses to marry Professor Bear, that's the thing. She is choosing. And there's this whole like element that she has to chase him down. She has to actively right. do something if she wants to pursue, if she wants to like actually be with this person. So it is her choice. It is not just love happening to her like it would be if she had stayed with Laurie. Um, and so I think that she, either way, she gets to be the strong character that she wants to be and that Alcott wanted her to be, whether she marries or not. So I think that's how I interpret yep. the ending. Fully agree. Scott, anything? I don't know if I have anything new to add to this conversation. Uh, spill all of my thoughts just a couple of days ago on this film. It's really good. I I struggled a little bit getting engaged in the first 30 to 40 minutes. I, I didn't feel super invested in like Joe first parts of the movie. But I think that the second half last third of this film is is really fantastic. And I think that the whether it's a tweaked or adjusted ending, however you want to describe it, I think that that really, really works uh, for the most part. I think I'm more satisfied with that. I understand at least of the ending of the original book. 
Okay, guys, we did it. Um, that is our top 10 movies of the year. And uh, to close things out, I want if y'all can pull up your, your full, top 10 lists, I just want to go down the list in order just to, to, for clarity's sake, because obviously we did jump around a lot. Um, so if Eli, if you have your list pulled up, do you want to just read through your through one? Yeah. Yes. At number 10, I have Marriage Story. Number nine, Us. Number eight, Midsummer. Number seven, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number six, Little Women. Number five, The Beach Bum. Number four, Ad Astra. Number three, The Lighthouse. Number two, The Farewell. And number one, Knives Out. Clint? Yeah, starting from number 10, going to number one. Spider-Man Far From Home, Detective Pikachu, Little Women, Two Popes, Sticks and Stones, The Irishman, Endgame, Dolomite, Us, and Knives Out. Scott? Yeah, absolutely. So number 10, Queen and Slim. Number nine, Honey Boy. Number eight, Knives Out. Number seven, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number six, Booksmart. Number five, Midsommar. Number four, Uncut Gems. Number three, Avengers Endgame. Number two, Marriage Story. And number one, Parasite. And for me, number 10, Uncut Gems. Number nine was Avengers Endgame. Number eight, Under the Silver Lake. Number seven, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number six, Wild Rose. Uh, number five was something that I am forgetting right now. <laughs> what was my number five? Dead air. Number five, number five was, was the Irishman. Number five was the Irishman. Oh, a forgettable uh, movie. Yeah. There you go. You just yeah. added yourself right there. <laughs> I thought I was going to be able to do this from memory, and I and I uh, wasn't able to. Number five, The Irishman. Uh, number four, Parasite. Number three, uh, number three was uh, Dark Waters. Number two was Midsommar. And number one, my favorite movie of the year, Little Women. Um, okay, guys, that we, we did it. Um, thanks to everyone for listening. If you tuned in on the live stream, thank you for watching. Uh, if you made it this far, uh, I know it was long, but... Um, Look, it was a great year for movies. I wouldn't take back a minute of this um, discussion because I think we we gave the discussion that needed to be had about the so many great movies that there were this year. And hopefully, if you have tuned in or listened to this episode or to our podcast at all this year, you've discovered a movie or two that you wouldn't have otherwise discovered because I think that's really why we're out to do this, right? So if someone, if, if we got somebody to see a wild rose or a parasite or uh, the beach bum today, then I think or detective Pikachu. Sure. Um, then I think we have succeeded in our task because Jim, that's, queen and slim. Yes. Bernie the dolphin too. Bernie the dolphin too. Uh, then I think we have right. succeeded in our task. Um, if we, if we've gotten somebody to do that. So um, yeah, I, I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode and that you have enjoyed this year in our podcast. We are excited uh, for what is to come in the next year. And I want to especially thank Clint and Eli for joining us. Um, guys, again, I know it was a long episode, so your commitment was was admirable. And we always enjoy having you guys on this episode. And, and hopefully we can do it again next year. Yeah, what else, what else am I going to do on New Year's Day? Yeah, this absolutely. Is, I say um, let's do another hour. <laughs> yeah, let's <laughs> let's just talk about cats for another hour, really. Um, Dude, I would I would I would crack open a couple beers and talk about cats for an hour if you guys want to. <laughs> uh no, but thanks for listening to this episode of Some Like It Scott. Um if you want to support our podcast, don't forget about our patreon.com slash media plug pods. Uh also rate review, like, subscribe, do all of the things that you do on our um podcast app on our on your preferred podcast app we're on all the podcasts and of course do the same for purely nostalgia as well um, on your preferred podcast app um, 
and have have a great uh, 2020. And we hope you will join us again for our next episode uh, on which we will be recapping the Golden Globe Awards from this Sunday. Um, until then, for Eli Smith, Clint Page, and Scott Shelton, I've been Scott Harvey. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.